2: Without any further ado, let's please welcome our first debater to the podium.
3: Good evening. I'd like to thank Ratio Christi and Reston Bible Church for arranging this debate and George Mason University for hosting. Hubert Humphrey said that freedom is hammered out on the anvil of discussion, dissent, and debate. Believe it or not, there are places in this world where it might not be safe for Christians and Muslims to gather for an event like this. Places where challenging the dominant ideology could be met with violence. Places where freedom is stamped out, not hammered out. I'm referring, of course, to college campuses. (laughs) College is a magical place where young people who know absolutely nothing about anything (laughs) nevertheless conclude that they're ready to solve all of the biggest problems that confront mankind, or people kind, for those of you watching the live stream in Canada, If you meet one of these these young activists, probably named Chad, he'll say, Yeah, I haven't learned any facts whatsoever about climate change or the national debt or how laws get passed, but by golly, I can fix it all. Really? How are you going to do that, Chad? I'll do it by teaming up with a bunch of other kids who don't know anything, and together we'll scream at anyone who disagrees with us. I do not envy the depression that will set in when Chad eventually figures out that this was the stupidest strategy for improving society that anyone has ever come up with. But I admire his audacity. Old people, unlike young people, know things. Unfortunately, they often lose their desire to take to the streets and challenge opposing positions, mainly because they're too busy having jobs and paying taxes. But college students, as clueless as they are, have no jobs, so they can spend all day fighting the power and ignoring their homework. (laughs) To these daring young revolutionaries, I say this. Since you're interested in huge topics, why not start with the resurrection of Jesus? Jesus rose from the dead. That is bigger than the environment, bigger than the economy, bigger than politics, And as you examine the evidence for the resurrection, you may even conclude that you've just stumbled upon the solution to the biggest problem in the universe, death. I'd also like to thank my friend Shabir for representing Islam tonight. This is my eighth debate with Shabir, and after all these years of debating, he's still trying to copy my beard. (laughs) Give it time, Shabir, give it time. The question before us is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Now, you may be wondering, how in the name of common sense are we going to answer a question about something that happened nearly 2,000 years ago in a completely different part of the world in an ancient culture, especially when it involves a miracle? But don't worry. I'm a philosopher. Philosophers specialize in formulating sophisticated arguments using deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, abductive reasoning, probability calculus, and Bayesian confirmation theory. Our arguments may be confusing to non-philosophers, but I find that if I just lay out my case in all its convoluted philosophical glory, and then walk people through it step by step, they slowly catch on. So try wrapping your minds around this argument. Jesus died, he was alive again later, so he rose from the dead. I see you're all confused. (laughs) Hopefully it will start to make more sense as we go through the evidence. There are plenty of barely literate internet skeptics who think that we can't know anything about Jesus of Nazareth. But even some of the most critical historical Jesus scholars will acknowledge certain facts about Jesus, that he was baptized by John the Baptist, that he had disciples, that he was known as a miracle worker and an exorcist, that he believed he played a crucial role in the coming of the kingdom of God, and of course that he died by crucifixion. The scholarly consensus on Jesus' death arises from, one, having a variety of ancient sources reporting that Jesus was crucified, and two, knowing how crucifixion works we have Christian, Jewish, and Roman sources reporting Jesus' execution. Four Gospels, Letters of Paul, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, uh, Josephus, Tacitus, Marabar Serapion, Lucian of Samosata, and so on. And our understanding of Roman crucifixion rules out any speculations about Jesus surviving his execution. Today, we tend to think of crucifixion as just nailing someone to a cross. But Roman crucifixion was a three-step process. The first step was the scourging, which was sometimes called the half-death because victims would be half-dead by the time it was finished. The Romans used a flagrum made of leather thongs with chunks of bone or metal woven into the strands designed to remove human flesh. We have records of people being beaten until their veins and arteries were exposed, until their bones were showing, or until their intestines spilled out. And that was just the beginning. Step two was nailing the victim to a cross and letting him hang there while the blood drained out of him. Once he stopped gasping for breath, the Romans knew that their work was done. Almost. There was still the matter of what to do with the body. Generally, the Romans would leave a corpse on the cross and let it rot or be torn apart by wild jackals and birds. But if they needed to pry someone off a cross, they would stab him through the heart with a sword or a spear just to make sure he was dead. Not the sort of process anyone's going to walk away from. So Jesus' death isn't simply a point of Christian doctrine. It's a fact of history, as even non-Christian scholars are happy to admit. Atheist New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann declares that Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. John Dominic Crossan, of the infamous Jesus Seminar, says that there is not the slightest doubt about the fact of Jesus' crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Marcus Borg, another member of the Jesus Seminar, states that Jesus' execution is the most certain fact about the historical Jesus. Jewish scholar Pincus Lapid concludes that Jesus' death by crucifixion is historically certain. According to Paula Fredrickson, a convert to Judaism, The single most solid fact about Jesus' life is his death. He was executed by the Roman prefect Pilate on or around Passover in the manner Rome reserved particularly for political insurrectionists, namely crucifixion. Bart Ehrman maintains one of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Intriguingly, some Muslims are even starting to acknowledge the facts here. Reza Aslan is a Muslim who authored a book on the historical Jesus. In an interview, Aslan affirmed, Islam doesn't believe that Jesus was crucified. Jesus was most definitely crucified. Amen to that, Brother Aslan. Notice that these non-Christian scholars and writers aren't simply saying that we have some evidence that Jesus died by crucifixion. They're saying that it's indisputable, that it's historically certain, that it's one of the most certain facts of history. We can only conclude that any worldview that denies Jesus' death by crucifixion is simply out of touch with reality. So Jesus died, and we know that he died, but according to his early followers, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and appeared to them on numerous occasions. Now, that's what the first generation of Christians claimed. But how can we know that Jesus was alive at some point following his execution? Well, the same way we know many other things from history. We need witnesses, and we need to know that we can trust these witnesses. Do we have witnesses of the risen Jesus? Uh Uh-huh, lots. Fortunately, they began preaching almost immediately, and we have summaries of some of their early sermons. They issued official creedal statements that could be easily memorized and passed on to others. They sent out representatives with authoritative traditions, traditions that would eventually be incorporated into the Gospels and other writings. We also have writings and quotations from outside the New Testament from the next generation of Christian leaders, which included people like Clement of Rome and Polycarp, who knew one or more of the apostles and who continued preaching the message of the apostles, especially the resurrection of Jesus. But the most interesting source on the eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus is an early Christian creed recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7. 1 Corinthians was written around A.D. 55, and Paul says in the letter that he delivered the creed to the church in Corinth when he visited them, which would have been in A.D. 51. But Paul had received the creed, long before that, either when he visited the Apostles in Jerusalem, or perhaps even at his conversion, and scholars date its formulation to within a few years of Jesus' crucifixion. James D.G. Dunn, this tradition, we can be entirely confident, was formulated as tradition within months of Jesus' death. According to Michael Goulder, Paul received the tradition, that is, he was taught it at his conversion, perhaps two years after Jesus' death. Ulrich Wilkins says that the creed indubitably goes back to the oldest phase of all in the history of primitive Christianity. Garrett Ludemann maintains that the elements of the tradition are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus. So there's widespread agreement from scholars across the theological spectrum that 1 Corinthians 15 is very early material that can be traced back to Jesus' original disciples shortly after his death. Let's read the passage. Paul writes, For I delivered to you, the Christians of Corinth, as of first importance, this is foundational information, what I also received. And here's where the creed that Paul received begins. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Paul is writing this years later, so he adds parenthetically, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. The original would have ended with this appearance to all the apostles, but Jesus appeared to Paul later, so Paul adds, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Notice what we have here. We have Jesus' death for sins, his burial, his resurrection on the third day, and numerous appearances, and we have all of it as authoritative tradition within a few years, if not within months, of the crucifixion. As for the appearances, there are appearances to individuals, James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, and eventually Paul, to small groups, the twelve and all the apostles, and to a large group. He appeared to more than 500 at one time. The list also reports appearances to both friends and foes. Peter and the apostles were followers of Jesus during his three-year ministry, but James and Paul weren't. James didn't believe in his brother when Jesus was preaching in Galilee and Judea, and Paul persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. Yet they're all listed as witnesses uh, who saw Jesus alive again sometime after his death. This passage eliminates two skeptical responses to Jesus' resurrection the legend hypothesis and the hallucination hypothesis. At the internet level, there are still people who claim that belief in Jesus' resurrection came about over a period of legendary development over several decades, but this is factually false. We know what the earliest Christian preaching was, and this goes back to the very beginning. You also may have heard people argue that Jesus' disciples simply hallucinated the resurrection appearances. But a hallucination, by definition, is something that occurs in the mind of the person who is seeing it. Since Jesus appeared to entire groups on multiple occasions, hallucinations just can't explain the appearances. So we can't attribute the resurrection appearances to legend or to hallucinations. Can we attribute them to deception? Deception were the disciples lying about the appearances. That's what I thought before I was a Christian. But there's a fatal flaw in the deception hypothesis. Liars make poor martyrs. Some human beings will will die for what they believe in. I've never met anyone who is willing to die for something he made up. In the book of Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and threatened in Acts 5, the apostles are put in jail and flogged. In Acts 12, James, the brother of John, is put to death by Herod, and Peter is again put in jail. The apostle Paul describes his life as a Christian in 2 Corinthians eleven, twenty-four 24 to 27. He writes, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Become an apostle, it's a great life. Jewish historian Josephus reports that James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death as a lawbreaker. Clement of Rome invites his readers to keep in mind the sufferings and martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. So the apostles didn't just preach that they had seen Jesus alive again, they were willing to endure prison floggings and death as they preached, and that means they really believed what they were saying. Here again, it's not just Christians who draw this conclusion, even non-Christian even non-Christians maintain that the disciples sincerely believed that they had seen the risen Jesus. Gert Ludemann. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Bart Ehrman. We can say with complete certainty that some of his disciples at some later time insisted that he soon appeared to them, convincing them that he had been raised from the dead. Paula Fredrickson. I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know, as a historian, that they must have seen something. Fredrickson says she doesn't know what they saw. But I do. They saw the sort of thing that would convince individuals and groups, friends and foes, that they had all seen a man who had once been dead standing before them. And I've never seen an explanation that accounts for this apart from the resurrection. That's the Christian perspective. But this debate is about Christian and Muslim perspectives. So I'll briefly address the most common Muslim account of what happened to Jesus. According to the traditional Muslim position, Jesus went around telling people to believe in God and in the Torah. And for some reason, this upset the Jews so much that they decided to kill him. But God had a plan. God took Jesus out of this world into heaven and disguised someone else to make him look like Jesus. And this other person was crucified. This is called substitution theory, the belief that Jesus was replaced by a substitute. There are numerous problems with this theory. Let's consider four. First, substitution theory portrays Allah as a malicious deceiver If Jesus didn't actually die, but Allah made people think that Jesus died, the real reason billions of people are now convinced that Jesus died by crucifixion is that Allah did an amazing job tricking everyone. Second, the Islamic view portrays Jesus as a failure. The Jesus of the Quran spent years preaching Islam, only to have his life's work sabotaged by Allah, who convinced the world that Jesus died by crucifixion, ultimately giving rise to Christianity. According to the Quran, Jesus' followers were devout Muslims, but they must have disappeared rather quickly without so much as a whimper because we have no records that they even existed. So the Islamic Jesus couldn't win a single lasting convert and he accomplished absolutely nothing of any lasting significance. Third, Surah 61 verse 14 of the Quran claims that Allah aided the true followers of Jesus until they became uppermost over those who rejected Jesus. But the followers of Jesus, who became uppermost over those who opposed Jesus, were Christians who proclaimed Jesus' death and resurrection. If Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead, then the Quran is false. Fourth, Surah 7, verse 157 of the Quran says that Christians were still reading the gospel during the time of Muhammad. And Surah 5, verse 47 of the Quran commands Christians to judge by the gospel. Since we know that the gospel read by Christians in the 7th century affirmed Jesus' death and resurrection, Muslims are contradicting the Quran when they say that Jesus didn't die or rise from the dead. So the Islamic view not only flies in the face of history and scholarship, but also insults God, insults Jesus, and contradicts the Quran. The Christian view, by contrast, honors God, honors Jesus, and is thoroughly grounded in historical facts and careful scholarship. If we agree with David Hume that a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence, we should all confess that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead just as he said he would.
4: Hello again. I begin by praising our creator and fashioner, the creator of the heavens and the earth, asking to send peace and blessings upon all of his prophets, his messengers, all of the righteous people and saints of all time, on all of us here tonight, our loved ones, our families, and asking for peace and prosperity in the world around us. Uh, i want to uh, start by giving thanks to not only god but to all of the people who have made it possible for us to be here tonight the list as you know is very long so i just second what amos said before me and thank all of the people that he already thanked and uh, also some of the people who have been uh, making life for me comfortable since i got here picking me up from the airport and so on so uh, as for the topic tonight uh, david has given you a very good overview of the christian position and they also intimated something about the muslim position And that uh, is a a reasonable place for me to start at, the Muslim position. I'd like to introduce to you a a book by Tarif Khalidi, a Cambridge scholar, a book entitled The Muslim Jesus. And uh, in that book, Tarif Khalidi summarized uh, what we know from the Quran on the whole. He said that in denying the crucifixion, the Quran is in fact denying that the Jews killed him. Uh, So that is in a nutshell. Now, if you go into details about that, then we visit the verse, uh, Surah 4, verse 157, where it says uh, that the Jews were claiming we killed the Messiah, Jesus. And uh, in response to that, the Quran is saying they killed him not and they did not crucify him. Now, Muslim scholars uh, have generally taken uh, these to be two things being denied. On the one hand, the Quran is saying they said, The Jews did not kill Jesus. And on the other hand, according to them, uh, the Quran is denying that Jesus was ever put on the cross. Here they take crucifixion in its uh, most absolute meaning. Um, Let me backtrack for a moment and say that crucifixion is an ambiguous term, just as the word hanging is in English. If we say uh, that, I've, that I've hung out my clothing to dry, that's just simply the act of hanging the clothing, right? But if we say that somebody has been hung for his crimes, speaking in the past tense, we mean uh, to refer to the act of hanging as a mode of execution. We mean that the person has been executed. So the term itself is ambiguous. When uh, we say that Jesus was crucified for our sins, what, what do we mean? We mean that he was killed, not only that he was hung for a moment or for a few days and taken down alive, but Christians mean that he was hung until he died, and hence the word crucifixion in that context means killed by that particular method that we're referring to uh, as we speak. The Muslim scholars wanted the word crucifixion here to mean it both ways. So the denial for them would be the denial of both things, both that he died on the cross and also that he was ever put on the cross. But I would say that given the context, the way in which the Quran speaks about this, uh, we need to look behind the Quran to see what was the situation that the Quran is commenting upon. In order to understand the Quran, Muslim scholars have explained that we have to look at what they call the asbab nuzul or the circumstances of revelation. Usually there is something factual happening on the ground, and the Quran is commenting upon that. So when the Quran is speaking about the crucifixion of Jesus, to deny it, we have to go back in history and ask, what is it that the Quran could be denying? Uh, To be sure, the Muslim scholars did this too. What they did was they looked at the gospel uh, reports about how Jesus was arrested and then eventually brought to trial and then eventually put on the cross. And they wanted to find at some point uh, within that longer narrative where somebody could have been substituted to look like Jesus and could have been crucified while everyone thought that they were crucified Jesus. So they did the same thing, which I'm proposing that we do. But going further and in more detail on in, into the history about Jesus, there seems to be uh, to me to be no reason for thinking that somebody else was mixed up and crucified in the place of Jesus. What about the Quranic text? Does the Quranic text itself give sufficient reason for thinking that somebody else was crucified in the place of Jesus? Muslim scholars have pointed to a phrase within that same verse that we're looking at, Surah 4, verse 157, where it says, وَلَاكِنْ شُبِّهَ لَهُمْ And so it was made to appear to them, as Amos read it out earlier on. Now, that Arabic phrase actually is an impersonal phrase. Uh, Muhammad Asad, explaining this in his uh, commentary on the Quran, said that khuyla uh, li means uh, something has appeared to me. I, I fancied something. So in the, in, in the Quranic text, it must mean that while the Jews thought that they were crucifying Jesus, they did not actually crucify him. But what happened? The verse itself ends by saying, يَقِينَا They did not kill him for certain. Which could mean that while they thought that they had him dead on the cross, in fact, they did not quite kill him. Now, David says, well, there's no reason for thinking that the person would not die by crucifixion. Um... And, and he you know, gives us a graphic description, and uh, you know, he gives us uh, like a, the, the whip with all of its uh, spikes and so on to convince us that, well, Jesus' flesh must have been torn, maybe his uh, intestines were ripped out even before he went to the cross. But in, in presenting it that way, David is going by the details in the New Testament, details which are not necessarily attested to by the scholars that he has cited. In other words, critical scholars nowadays do not take the details as they are in the New Testament. For example, Raymond Brown, though a conservative scholar, is well respected across various denominations of Christianity. And in his two-volume work, The Death of the Messiah, he, asks, he says, we must wonder as to what was the physiological cause of the death of our Lord, because crucifixion pierces no vital organ. Often, the crucified victim would be left there for a couple of days, and then he eventually passes out, he dies, after he goes into volemic shock. But Jesus was on the cross, by all accounts, only for a few hours, to the extent that when it was reported to Pilate that Jesus died, and a claim was made for his body to be taken down, Pilate marveled that Jesus could have died so soon. So there was a question as to whether Jesus actually did die on the cross. I will elaborate more on this uh, later on. I wasn't planning to include this in my presentation. So in the interest of time, I will uh, continue. But in short, I would say that uh, there is... Uh, uh, there are good reasons for thinking that Jesus did not actually die on the cross at the time when the gospel writers say, say that he died, and possibly he was taken down alive and put in the, into the tomb. And in that case, the Quran could be merely saying, while the Jews thought that they had finished Jesus off by crucifixion, they did not actually finish him off, they did not kill him for certain, but God rescued him and raised him, to himself and so we believe in the ascension. Many Christians will be surprised to, to know that Muslims do acknowledge that Jesus was raised to heaven. surah four verse one hundred and fifty eight says but, but God raised him to himself. And so Muslims and Christians together believe that Jesus is alive and in heaven that God uh, rescued him. Now, I must add, however, that Muslims are of many different persuasions. Um, David uh, showed us the picture of Reza Aslan, and there are many Muslims who approach things differently. Some Muslims take the texts literally, some take texts uh, figuratively and metaphorically. Some Muslims are, um, easy, uh, are, find themselves uh, okay with mir- miracles, especially of a stark kind. Some other Muslims would like to see more scientific explanations, rational uh, processes by which they understand things. So some Muslims would have the idea that Jesus was raised bodily into heaven where he somehow is retained by God for his second coming. And some other Muslims might say, well, maybe his soul went into heaven even if his body was left in the grave. Uh, some may say that uh, it doesn't matter body or body or soul when the quran says that god has raised someone it may mean that god has exalted that person in position and and in in, in status and respect and not necess- it's not necessarily a statement about anything any any aspect of the human person that is somehow uh, lifted up to the sky. So I, I say that there is this variety of belief among Muslims. I would add, and I, I hope I'm not presumptuous in saying so, that Christians also are of quite a variety. There are some Christians who insist on the actual bodily resurrection of Jesus, and and in that case, some of them think that it's the same body in which he lived on this earth that was somehow metamorphosized uh, to a glorified body, and that one was lifted up, and so uh, the, the, the body of Jesus could not possibly have been left in the tomb. Some of the Christians say it doesn't matter if his body was left in the tomb, maybe his spirit was raised into heaven and that's good enough for us. So there is a variety of beliefs among Muslims, also a variety of beliefs uh, among Uh, Christians, And what what I want to look for tonight are ways in which Muslims and Christians can talk to each other. I don't want to prove Islam right and Christianity wrong. In fact, I want to prove Christianity right. But in my view, uh, what is most uh, right in Christianity are are, are those aspects which can be retraced to the earliest uh, generation of Christians. And I will attempt to find uh, what were some of those beliefs as regards to our topic here tonight. So let me proceed. I have to say that there has been an evolution in both the texts and in the beliefs of Christians over time. Starting with the texts, there is a book by Marcus Borg, one of the scholars that David just cited, entitled The Evolution of the Word. And what he proposes is precisely what I'm saying, that the texts have actually evolved over time. And let's look at some actual facts regarding this. Now, we see that there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Bible, and scholars have grouped them together, saying that we have, on the one hand, John's Gospel, which is a different Gospel, and three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, meaning that these three can be viewed together. They're quite similar. Now, If you go from uh, the synoptic Gospels to the Gospel according to John, it is widely recognized that there is an evolution in the way that Jesus is presented. Jesus is presented much more glorious in the Gospel according to John. So you can see before your eyes that from the first three Gospels to the last one, uh, there is a change. Such a change that James Dunn, one of the scholars that uh, David just cited, uh, said that uh, many people coming to this for the first time will be in shock to see how John Presents Jesus after they have already read about Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels. Very different presentation. Now, among the three Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can also see that there is a, a progression. So that, whereas in Mark, when the women went to the tomb, they found a young man in the tomb who told them that Jesus is not here, uh, he's risen. Now, in Matthew, what they found is an angel. So we went from a young man to an angel. It's possible that Mark also means an an angel, but he specifically said a young man. Now, Matthew makes sure that there is an angel. In Luke, there are two angels. So if we go from Mark to Matthew and Luke, we see from Mark, there's a young man, Matthew, an angel, Luke, two angels. We're dealing with the very same scenario, the very same event, described differently. You can see that there is a progression uh, over time. Now, evolution, as you know, doesn't always occur in a straight line. If we say that house prices tend to rise over time, uh, there could be ups and downs, but we're talking about the overall trend. And and the overall trend is what I'm interested in here. We see that the the later the text, the the more Christian it becomes. And the earlier the text, uh, would I be presumptuous in saying the more Muslim it is, as, as uh, you will see over time. Uh, so uh, I'm sorry that I have this so low, and I hope that uh, uh, Scott's head won't be in the way here. Scott, sorry to uh, bother you, my friend. Okay, so in Mark, the women uh, left the tomb after the, this young man spoke to them. And Mark says, "...trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid." And now the problem is that if, if that's how Mark ended his gospel originally, before other people came and tacked on other passages trying to say that Jesus did you know, appear to his disciples and so on, now this is not a very satisfying Christian ending to the gospel because we want to know more. Well, wait a minute. So he's not here. He's been risen. Where is he? How, how, what, can we see him? And if the women got this message from the young man Uh, why didn't they tell anybody? And if they didn't tell anybody, how did Mark come to know about it? Some scholars say that Mark is actually saying this apologetically because by the time he's writing decades later, uh, it it may be asked of him, if you're describing the story that the body was taken and there was a young man there in the the tomb, uh, how come we never heard about this story before? Because Paul, as uh, uh, David uh, showed us, Paul has this charisma. Jesus was buried and he appeared. Well, where's the empty tomb? Where does he say that the tomb was discovered empty? He doesn't say. Did he know about the empty tomb? There's a question mark about that. But the first written record we have that there was an empty tomb is in Mark's gospel. And the women who discovered the tomb empty didn't tell anybody. So how did Mark know about this? So there are these difficult questions to deal with. So how did the later gospel writers deal with this? Well, Matthew comes along and says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. So that's how we knew, because they ran to tell the disciples. So comparing them, you can see that in Mark, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. In Matthew, they ran. Yes, they were still afraid, but they were also filled with joy, as you might expect. And then they ran to tell the disciples. So that's how we know. So then we come to Luke, and Luke has done it in his own way. And I still improved it a bit because not only did they tell the things to the 11, which is the number of disciples remaining after the one betrayed Jesus, but to all the others. So now everybody knows that this is the story. So comparing them, here again we have Mark, so you can see at a glance, Mark said they said nothing to anyone. Luke says they told the 11 and all of the rest. Putting the three together in summary, in Mark they told nobody. In Matthew, they told the disciples. In Luke, they told the disciples. And all of the others. Okay? So we can see that there is a progression over time. The story is becoming more as we go from one gospel to another. So scholars evaluating this have said that Matthew, Mark was written first. Matthew and Luke later. And that's, that accounts. That explains why these differences are. As they are, Matthew and Luke are improving upon Mark. They have Mark before them. They are copying, but also changing as they go. In terms of dates, Jesus, Muslims believe, has ascended to heaven. The date that is commonly given is 30 CE or even 33 CE. Um, Mark, the earliest possible scholars say nowadays, was 65. They say 65 to 75, which means three and a half decades after Jesus left the scene. So in that period of time, people are evaluating the stories, uh, evolving the stories, and then eventually the stories get written as they are. And then Matthew and Luke, another 20 years uh, later by 85 CE. And uh, then finally, not to forget John, John by 100 uh, uh, CE. And so we have John, for example, written some uh, 60 years after Jesus had already uh, left the, the, the scene. Am I right about that? 30 plus 60, 65, 70 70 years. So the stories evolve and change. And uh, in, in sum, it, it is important for us to bear in mind that Mark was written first, and John was written last. Once you bear that in mind, you will realize that much of what is presented, much of what David argues for, uh, ignores the, the, the evolution of the Gospels. And when you read the Gospels with this in mind, you will see that as you go from Mark to, to John, the number of witnesses in, increase, uh, the, the closeness of the witnesses to the cross in, increase. Think, for example, about the beloved disciple who was there at the foot of the cross in John's Gospel. Why isn't the beloved gospel, uh, disciple mentioned in the other Gospels? And Not only is he not mentioned at the foot of the cross, but he's not mentioned at all. When at the Last Supper, this beloved disciple is supposedly leaning on the uh, chest of Jesus, so that Peter has to ask through the beloved disciple, in the Synoptic Gospels, Peter asks directly. There's no beloved disciple in sight here in the other Gospels. So it, it seems that John has invented his own witness and placed him at the scene of the cross so that he could be a witness to whatever is happening. So then he can tell you, oh, well, Jesus was spared in the side. So that must have been the thing that killed him. But now historians think that that spear in the side is not a historical reminiscence at all, and that this is just uh, an invention of the fourth gospel for its own uh, theological purposes. And therefore we cannot, in the end, have any confidence that Jesus actually died on the cross. Now I'd like to introduce you very quickly. I have to move uh, over. There's something here about Paul's writings in between, but I must... uh, get back here to in the interest of time. So Paul's writing comes in before all of the Gospels. And, and that accounts for a lot of the influence of Pauline teaching into the Gospels. I'll elaborate on that later on. More importantly, I'd like to introduce you to this book by Daniel Smith. His name is given at the bottom here of the of the, tech, of the cover page. Postmortem Vindication of Jesus and the Sayings Gospel Q. Daniel Smith has advanced a remarkable thesis which was known before him that Jesus, according to a, a very early Christian proclamation, was actually raised into heaven from the tomb. He was assumed into heaven, and not that he came out of the tomb, met with his disciples, and then finally ascended, but I'll elaborate on that uh, in the later segments. Thank you all very much for your patient listening.
3: Check. Thank you, Shabir. Um, in my opening statement, I argued that Jesus died by crucifixion and that a number of his followers were convinced that he had risen from the dead and appeared to them. And I showed that scholars regard these facts as indisputable. Since there's no plausible alternative that accounts for these facts, it looks like we've got a miracle. Now, Shabir and I obviously disagree on some things, we're going to go through those. Um, but before I address the disagreements, I think it would be nice to address some agreements between us. And we have three important areas of agreement already. First, we agree that something miraculous occurred. Um, whichever uh, Muslim explanation should be or favors, uh, if it's not naturalism, Um, then it is going to involve a miracle at some point. So this is not like a debate between a a Christian or a Muslim versus an atheist where you have uh, supernatural explanations competing with natural explanations. Uh, This is going to be a discussion about supernatural explanations. And that's relevant because if God is doing whatever he does, whether it's the Muslim version or the Christian version, if God is doing whatever he does for a sign to other people, we would expect... God to get the message across. We would expect the, the people of that time to catch on and to be able to pass this on. Why is that relevant? Well, the message that was passed down to us was the resurrection, so if something else happened, it doesn't look like that sign really made its point. Second, we agree that the vast majority of Muslims are apparently wrong about this. If the substitution theory is wrong according to the Quran. If, if some other view is correct, if Shabir holds something other than substitution theory as the correct Muslim view, then since most Muslims adhere to some version of substitution theory, that would mean that the vast majority of Muslims over the centuries have been wrong about Jesus. And I would agree, the question is, are any more wrong about Jesus? But think about this, why Have so many Muslims over the centuries been wrong about Jesus, if they are wrong about Jesus? Why they been so wrong? Could it be that the Quran simply isn't clear enough in what it says about Jesus' crucifixion? And this would bring us to the third point of agreement. Shabir and I agree that Surah 4 verse 157 of the Quran is extremely vague and confusing. I discussed the most common Muslim uh, interpretation of the text in my opening, but Shabir's right when he says that uh, that verse might not mean what most Muslims think it means, and that there are all kinds of uh, interpretations, especially when we examine the context, both the literary context and the historical context. Um, the, the context is some, Muhammad had already received and delivered revelations that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's born of a virgin. Some local... Jews responded, what do you mean? His mother obviously committed adultery or something, and we killed him. He can't be the Messiah. How can he be the Messiah if we killed him? And so Allah responds to this, saying, they killed him not nor crucified him, but so it was made to appear to them. And so Shabir has acknowledged that we can interpret that so it was made to appear to them in different ways. Uh, But think about this. Uh, What was made to appear to them? Was was it Jesus in a physical form? Was it something else? Uh, Or did it just appear to them as if they had victory over the Messiah, and it appeared to them that way, but they didn't, because Jesus was raised? Um, What's interesting is that if we examine this text in the light of certain other things that the Quran says about people who are dying, we start to see another interpretation emerge. So chapter 3, verse 169 of the Quran, Do not think of those who are slain in the way of Allah as dead. Nay, they are alive with their Lord and have their provision. Here it's saying, hey, if you think someone's dead, he's not. He's with Allah. So if you think you've killed the Messiah, and the Messiah has been exposed as uh, a false Messiah and a false prophet because he's dead, no, he's alive with Allah. Chapter 3, verse 145, no person can ever die except with Allah's permission and at an appointed time. So, no one dies except by the will of Allah. And when we bring that alongside, chapter 8, verse 17, which is revealed uh, after the events at Badr, where uh, certain Muslims came back and were talking about how many people they had uh, killed in the battle and so on, And Allah says, chapter 8, verse 17, it was not you who killed them, it was Allah who killed them. Now think about what that is saying. What do you mean, I didn't kill him? The guy came at me, I stabbed him, he died. What do you mean I didn't kill him? But Allah says it wasn't you that killed him. Uh, Allah is the one who killed him. So, the Muslims thought they were killing these guys, but they weren't killing them, Allah was. So here, if, if death is... Uh, the plan is, is only in accordance with the will of Allah, and Allah is actually the one who's doing killing in certain situations, now think of, they killed him not, nor crucified him. Well, it would be perfectly consistent with that passage to say that what the verse is really saying is that the Jews didn't kill Jesus. Even if Jesus died, they weren't really killing him. He's going to be with Allah. But if it's according to the will of Allah that Jesus dies, if that was some sort of purpose of Allah, then Allah's the one killing him, it's not you. Or just, or just it's denying that they had any real victory. Because, because again, the point of the Jewish objection was, we killed him so he's a false messiah. And the response is no, Allah raised him up unto himself. So it's perfectly consistent with that verse to interpret it in a number of ways. You can interpret this according to substitution theory. You can interpret it in many other ways. But it is perfectly consistent, and there are people who have interpreted it this way uh, over the centuries, to mean that even if Jesus was killed, the Jews just didn't prove him wrong because he's still with Allah, and anyone who dies, it's, it's according to the will of Allah. Now, what does it mean when this verse is unclear? Well, guess what? That's the only verse in the Quran that refers to Jesus' crucifixion. Generally, as a rule of interpretation, if you have an unclear verse, if you have an unclear verse, you go to a clear verse to explain what the unclear verse means. You interpret the unclear in light of the clear. But there is no clear verse in the Quran. That's it. That's all you have on the crucifixion of Jesus. And if you try to go outside that verse elsewhere in the Quran to figure out what happened to Jesus, All the rest of the evidence seems to indicate that he didn't die. I mean, that he did die by crucifixion. If you consider, it seems to assume that Jesus died. For instance, uh, chapter 19, verse 31 of the Quran, Jesus says that Allah has enjoined on him prayer and zakat as long as he remains alive. Think about the implications there. Jesus has to pay zakat as long as he remains alive. Well, if Shabir's right and Jesus never died, then Jesus is paying zakat in paradise with Allah. He's been doing it for nearly 2,000 years. Zakat, according to Islam, is for things like uh, feeding the poor. So are there poor in paradise? Zakat is for, uh, to, to pay those, to pay those who, who fight in the way of Allah. Is there warfare? going on in paradise if jesus is right there then absolutely there's 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 poverty and hunger and warfare in paradise because jesus is paying zakat to pay for these kinds of things or jesus died you also have um various passages in the quran which taken without interpreting them in the light of Surah 4, verse 157, which is what Muslims do, right? Any verse that that pops up about what happened to Jesus, they they translate it and understand it in the light of Surah 4, verse 157. But if Surah 4, verse 157 is itself unclear, then you should just interpret these verses in the most natural light. And passages like Surah 3, verse 55, where Allah says to Jesus, I will take you and raise you to myself. The language used there, when it's used elsewhere in the Quran, usually refers to Allah taking someone to paradise after the person has died. So, is there a way out of this? Is there a way out of this? When the only verse we have that would deny the crucifixion is unclear, and other passages in the Quran seem to weigh in favor of Jesus dying, is there a way out? Is there, is there something clear? Because even those aren't very clear. Is there something clear? Well, yes. And the Quran gives us a method to interpret what happened. Because the Quran says, chapter 61, verse 14, that Allah aided the true followers of Jesus until they became uppermost over those who rejected him. So according to the Quran, all we have to do is look to history. Look to history and say, what happened? Who won? Who became uppermost? Well, if there were some early Muslim followers who believed something like that, if Shabir's going to argue that, that there were these you know, people before the writing of the Gospels and they, were eventually, uh, and they eventually lost, well, guess what? They weren't the true followers of Jesus then. They didn't win. So the Quran gives us a way out, and the Quran affirms that the true followers of Jesus won and became uppermost. We know what the people who won in the, any, any sort of uh, disagreements of, of Christianity over time, the people who believed in Jesus' death and resurrection, won. So, the way out, according to the Quran, is to say, here's an unclear verse. We don't know what it means. Other passages of the Quran seem to suggest that he did die, but we don't know. But the Quran tells us where to go, if we'd like to know, and it tells, us, uh, tells Christians to judge by the gospel. Um, it says in chapter 10, verse 94, speaking to Muhammad, if you are in doubt as to what we have revealed to you, ask those who read the book before you. Referring to the people of the book, that's Jews and Christians. So Allah commands, Allah commands even Muhammad to go to the people of the book to verify revelations. Allah says He commands Christians, in Surah Five, Verse Forty Seven, to do the, to obey the gospel. Right? We have to obey the gospel. If we don't, we're no better than those who rebel. We judge by the gospel. Well, if we judge by the gospel, we know what the gospel in the seventh century said. It said that Jesus died by crucifixion and rose from the dead. We ask the people of the book, in this case it's Christians, We believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. So if you don't, if you go with some other interpretation, you're rejecting Allah and calling the Quran a false revelation.
4: I believe my microphone is still on. Yeah. Uh, hello again, everyone, and thank you for that excellent uh, rebuttal, David. So, let me respond to some of the points that David just made and some of the previous points as well. So, he said, Do we have uh, an agreement that something miraculous did happen? And the question is, uh, what uh, was that miracle that happened? And uh, if it is the Muslim idea of that miracle, why wasn't this passed on by the disciples of Jesus? Because all we have in the New Testament and the Christian writings is the Christian story. Well, I've shown you, in fact, how the Christian story developed over time and became the Christian story. Uh, So that was not the original story. What was the original story? We might think that uh, we can get it directly from the disciples. Do we have writings of the original disciples of Jesus? No. Uh, Some people thought that there are two letters of Peter in the New Testament, and they're called 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and they begin by saying, I am Peter, the disciple of Jesus, writing this to you. Uh, But scholars now, uh, and in fact, even ancient scholars, uh, had uh, widely held that 2 Peter is not really by Peter. So this is referred to as one of the pseudonymous writings, falsely written in the name of uh, Peter. As for First Peter, scholars are divided. Some say he wrote it; some say he didn't write it. Uh, now we cannot use something that is uh, so questionable as a proof of what Peter actually preached. So now we go to Acts of the Apostles in the Bible, because after the four Gospels we have seen Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the the fifth book in the New Testament is called Acts of the Apostles. This is, uh, for Muslims, this is something like the Hayatus Sahaba of the the, uh, Christians. So uh, it describes where the disciples of Jesus went and what they preached and so on. So maybe there we'll find what Peter preached. And there it says, indeed, Acts chapter 2, Peter got up and he preached. So what was he preaching? Well, uh, we we must say right off the bat that uh, uh, Christian scholars now are largely acknowledging that uh, Acts of the Apostles did not write down precisely what the disciples preached. Uh, The the author wrote down uh, the kinds of things which he thought it would have been natural for the disciples to preach. So it's not their exact words. But okay, let's take the words as they are. Now you go to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, and Peter Peter makes his first public declaration. And he declares that Jesus has been raised. Muslims do not have any difficulty with that. uh, Because as I've uh, shown, uh, a wide variety of beliefs can be accommodated within the Quranic passages dealing with this question. But then, how was he raised? David's point is that Jesus died and then came back to life. But look at Peter's uh, quotation of uh, the 16th Psalm to prove that this is what happened to Jesus. Now go back and read the 16th Psalm and you will see that this is not about a person who died but a person who came close to death. The interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible, actually commenting on this psalm, says that no doctrine of resurrection is involved in that 16th psalm. It's about a person. It is about a person who comes close to death, but doesn't die, and God rescues him from death. Okay, go to the next chapter. Uh, Peter is quoting now uh, the 118th psalm, where it says, "The stone that uh, you have rejected, that's the one that has become the capstone." Okay, so go back to the 118th Psalm to see how does that Psalm describe this person who is rejected and now he becomes the capstone. That is the person who again comes close to death, but he doesn't die. God rescues him and saves him from dying. That's the important point. So it would appear that the earliest proclamation of the Christians was actually of such a nature that it could be understood as a person who... Uh, Jesus, in this case, came close to death, but did not die, and God rescued him from death, which I, I believe is accommodatable uh, in, in the Quran. So the message that was passed on, according to David, being the Christian message, that's the later message. And I'm looking back towards the earlier message to see what Muslims and Christians can agree on. That That is the earliest uh, Christian message. And uh, David sa- spoke rightly when he said that Muslims revere the disciples of Jesus, and we think that they were true Uh, Muslims is the term that we would use for them not facetiously but in the sense that they were submitters to God and that's what the term Muslim uh, means. But David said but in that case they had to be the ones who were victorious. Well, then we have to understand what the Quran means by victorious. It could have many meanings, and we have to look at the passages very clearly. It could be that in the eyes of God, these are the ones who are victorious. Some people are making a false claim. The disciples of Jesus are making a true claim. So at the very basic level, in the sight of God, these are the victorious ones. God doesn't care Uh, about what the others are claiming he supports those people who uh, believe in him and they will have ultimate salvation in the life uh, hereafter because they are the people of truth now uh, David says but that would mean that the Quran is not clear he did explain that there are many possibilities in interpreting the Quranic verse but then he concludes that that means the Quran is not clear uh, but the Qur'an itself acknowledges that some passages will not be clear. The third chapter of the Qur'an, the seventh verse, says that uh, uh, f- within the book there are <inaudible> ayatun murkhamat. They are clear verses. Uh, وَأُخَرَ, وَأُخَرَ and, uh, and others that are uh, ambiguous. So uh, when the Qur'an is teaching the central doctrines of Islam, uh, the Qur'an is very clear. There is only one God. We believe in God, the angels, prophets, books, and so on. So we believe in prophets. That's very clear in the Quran. But how a particular prophet died, that is not one of our central beliefs. There have been many prophets. We don't know how all of them died. We don't have to know. It's not necessary for our salvation. So things like that are not so very clear in the Quran. And that's not a problem for us. But it stimulates our intellect. It gives us reason to research, to think, to examine, and to have discussions like this. Uh, So so that's not a problem at all, Uh, but the the Muslim scholars who insisted that Jesus was substituted for on the cross, they thought that it was clear to them, but I've explained how they have uh, arrived at uh, at the view, which I did not support here uh, uh, tonight. If they had paid attention to another passage of the Quran, Surah 3, verse number 55, which David didn't mention, uh, he mentioned it actually. Did you mention Surah 3, verse 55? Beginning. So in Surah three, verse number fifty-five, God says to Jesus, "Inni mutawafika wa I am going to cause you. Oh, you, I, you did say it, but you said, "I'm going to take you and raise you uh, and raise you." So let me use, start with David's translation. I'm going to take you and raise you. So what does it mean? Take you? The, the, the Arabic term here, "mutawafika," can actually mean take you, but usually this is a euphemism for taking a person in death. So, some translators of the Quran will boldly render this, that God said to Jesus, I'm going to cause you to die, and then raise you to myself. But the then there is my own insertion. They wouldn't put then. Because they would say that the and there in Arabic, uh, represented by the Arabic particle wa, does not necessarily indicate sequence. So, it could be that when God is saying, I'm going to cause you to die, and raise you to myself, God means it in reverse order. I'm going to first raise you to myself, then send you back into the world, at which time you will eventually die, and that's when I will take you in, in death. Uh, but some others, like Gabriel Syed Reynolds, asks, uh, how do we interpret the Quran like this? There's no warrant for doing this. The plain reading is that God is going to cause Jesus to die and then take him uh, up into heaven. Uh, but there is another meaning which Gabriel Said Reynolds seems to have uh, 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 ignored, and that is the meaning that is known from other passages of the Quran, for, for example in Surah al-Zuhruf, uh, the uh, 43rd chapter, uh, or Surah al-Zumr, the 39th chapter of the Quran, uh, where God says that he is the one who takes your souls at night. Uh, So, uh, the the idea is that God takes your souls at night, but in sleep, while you're asleep, and then sends the souls back, and then you're awake by morning. So, uh, the the term there in Surah 355 is ambiguous as well, in that it could mean that God took Jesus in death, or that God took Jesus in his sleep. In any case, if God is going to transport Jesus from out of this world into an entirely different realm, then he, he would have to be at least asleep. And uh, uh, perhaps one might say that he might be regarded as one who has died because he was here, no longer here. Any other person described like that, according to Imam al-Razi in his tafsir, would be described as a dead person. Now, that brings us to the question of zakat. So, does Jesus have to keep paying zakat while he is in heaven? Well, even while he was on earth, even though he is theoretically obligated to pay zakat, zakat, our charity, is only obligatory on the Muslim who has wealth out of which to spend. And we know from the Gospels that Jesus did not have much. Jesus is even reported to have said that, that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So, if he doesn't have anything, he doesn't have to pay. And if he is in paradise and he doesn't have anything in paradise out of to spend in charity. Well, then he doesn't have to spend in charity. I do not see that there is a problem there. In any case, when a command or uh, uh, is stated in the Quran, the command is is, is pertaining to circumstances. So if circumstances are not right for fulfilling that command, God does not hold the Muslim or anyone else responsible for fulfilling that uh, command. As for the statement that Muslims are supposed to uh, abide by what the Gospels say, because the Quran says, uh, let the people of the Gospel judge by what God has revealed therein, I think David has overstated this case. And in fact, he and I debated this in the past, so I would refer you to that past debate. Uh, These statements do not imply that the Gospels, as they are now, are 100% the Word of God. Uh, For example, uh, let the people of the Gospel judge by what God has revealed therein. It's by what God has revealed therein. It's not... Everything that is in there, because it could have what God has revealed, plus other things besides. And I've shown you some examples of other things besides how people have modified and evolved the message uh, over time. As for the Quranic statement to the Prophet, ask the people of the book if you do not know, uh, uh, or if you are in doubt. Uh, then, uh, if you read the chapter, for example, Sur- this is found in Surah 10, verse 94. If you read the entire Surah 10, you will see that the Quran is insisting that this is the truth, and only that which agrees with this can be the truth, and what people have as other statements, that cannot be the truth. And that is the Quranic message on the on the whole. At the same time, the Quran is giving credence to that amount of the uh, Christian scripture, which is originally from God, and which is the true message, which is what we are trying to find here tonight. So, in some, I would rest that uh, there is no clear proof that Jesus actually died on the cross, and the stories of the appearances of Jesus from the tomb, these are later developments, that Jesus came out of the tomb, met with his disciples and so on, but If Jesus was assumed into heaven directly from the tomb, as uh, Daniel Smith uh, proposes was an early Christian belief, and if from heaven Jesus appeared to one or two disciples, and then they told others, and then the message spread to others, and others too thought that they were seeing Jesus, this is entirely compatible uh, with the Quranic message that they killed him not, nor did they crucify him. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you again, Shabir. Shabir said earlier that when I talk about the wounds in my description of the crucifixion, I'm simply taking what the Gospels say for granted. Actually, everything I said about crucifixion I got from uh, non-Christian sources. So uh, that comes from other uh, Jewish and Roman descriptions of crucifixion. So we know how crucifixion worked, and it worked exactly like we find it in, uh, in the Gospels. Um, He said that scholars point out that we have to wonder what killed Jesus because crucifixion pierces no vital organ, right? When scholars discuss what kills you during crucifixion, it's because so many different things can kill you during crucifixion. You uh, You can go into shock, you can have a heart attack, you can die by asphyxiation, and they say that it'll sort of depend on what position you're nailed and how severe the scourging was, but they're not doubting that you die from crucifixion. Um, He cites Marcus Borg, arguing that the texts have evolved over time, and he points out that I cited Marcus Borg. I quoted Marcus Borg to show that even the most radical scholars who never agree with anything, who are so far out on left field on the theological spectrum that they would almost fall off, even they agree that not only that Jesus died, but that it's historically certain. And they agree that Jesus' apostles, his disciples, were completely convinced that he appeared to them afterwards. So even the most radical scholars agree on the points that I used in my opening statement. Also notice that if Shabir is rejecting those points, Jesus' death and the disciples' belief that he appeared to them, then he's further out there than they are on the theological spectrum in terms of what counts as evidence. Shabir says that we see an evolution from Mark to John. And, you know, you can look at examples like uh, a young man in Mark and then later it's an, it's an angel and so on. Um, y- you can do this kind of with, with any text. You can go to differences and whatever order you want them in, you can say you see the evolution. So, for instance, in Mark, Mark reports 18 miracles of Jesus. Um, Matthew and Luke each report 20 miracles of Jesus. But Mark is much shorter than Matthew and Luke, so as far as a proportion of the content, Mark is, has a far more miraculous Jesus than we find in Matthew and Luke. John, the latest, the most evolved, the most embellished, has seven miracles. Why is the evolution and embellishment going in the wrong direction? Well, the answer is that if you have texts with different authors emphasizing different things for different audiences, they're going to share different details, and you can always, whatever order you have them in, pick out the details and say, you see, they're changing the story as they go along to make it bigger. Well, I mean, John should have hundreds of miracles then, if he's starting with 18 and Mark, and this is decades later. Um, He says that Mark is late, 65 to 75, Matthew uh, Matthew and Luke afterwards, John around 100, Um, Do you know why many scholars give those late dates for the text? There's one main reason, and that's that Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 70. So if if you're a skeptic and you don't believe Jesus could predict the future, then you say, well, it must have been while these horrible events were going on. That's that's the reason that these, we have to give it these late dates. Well, we're Christians and Muslims in here, right? We're not atheists. We believe that Jesus could predict the future. So if Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem, that's no reason for us to agree with these dates. So if you know why scholars give these late dates, and you know that you don't agree with their reasons for giving them the late dates, then you might want to rethink the dates. Um, but apart from that, notice what I did in my opening statement. I went to the First Corinthians Creed. What did scholars say about that one? What did the same scholars who would, who would date the Gospels to uh, the late 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on, what did they say? They said that's extremely early material, possibly within months, but at least within a couple years of Jesus' crucifixion. And what did you have there? Jesus died, was buried, was raised, and appeared to numerous people, groups and individuals, friends and foes. So I went immediately, in my opening statement, to the earliest possible material we have. It confirmed everything I said, and Shabir goes to much later sources to respond. Um, Shabir uh, goes with uh, Daniel Smith who, and says, well, he argues that Jesus was taken from heaven uh, to heaven from the tomb. As if this agrees with, our, uh, with, with, with the Islamic view. Uh, notice the name of the book the post-mortem vindication of Jesus in the saying's gospel Q. I could point out that almost no one agrees with Daniel Smith, but uh, let's at least be clear on what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus did die. So even the scholar that Shabir quoted agrees with me that Jesus died. Shabir goes to the book of Acts. He says Peter quotes Psalm 16 in Acts chapter 2, but in that psalm it's about someone who didn't die. Well, let's read what else Peter says in Acts chapter 2, same sermon, verses 23 to 24. Peter says, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. In the very chapter that Shabir goes to, to prove his case, Peter says that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Exactly what I've been saying. So if that's where you're getting your evidence, I'd say you might want to look somewhere else. As for the apostles quoting psalms, the apostles quoting psalms, where someone is um, talking and didn't actually die, but the the disciples are interpreting this as um, fulfillments of uh, prophecy for Jesus, Um, we can't read these documents like 21st century, even Christians and Muslims, uh, if we want to know what they're talking about, we'd have to read them as first-century Jews and first-century Christians, and they had a method of interpretation called Remes, which is uh, Remes means uh, hint, and the texts are giving you hints about something. And so, if a text says, "I was I was in the dust of death," but he didn't literally die, they would look to that and say, "Ooh, what happens if?" This applies literally to someone else to come. Now, you can say that's a bad method of interpretation, but if you're saying it's a bad method of interpretation that they used, why would you agree with their identification of which psalms are about Jesus? You're saying they have a flawed method. So you have no reason to think these psalms are about Jesus apart from what they said, but what they said, they're using their own methods of interpretation which are completely in line with Jesus dying. Um... Now, Shabir says that uh, when they became uppermost, this could mean all kinds of things. Uh, We don't know what it means when he says that uh, the true followers of Jesus would become uppermost. But notice what it says. It says that Allah aided the followers of Jesus until they became uppermost. If Shabir is correct, the first generation of Muslim followers of Jesus were wiped out or abandoned or changed their minds so quickly that we have no record of their existence except in texts that constantly proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection, and we try and sift our way through these. But that's just not a good methodology. So everything we have, every source we have, still affirms Jesus died by crucifixion and rose from the dead. Just no way around this.
4: So, this, uh, I believe, is the final uh, rebuttal session. Am I right? How much time do I have? Eight minutes? Okay. So, uh, very quickly, um, David says that Jesus appeared even to people who did not previously believe in him. And he cites as an example of that James. But actually, uh, some conservative scholars now think that James must have believed in Jesus even while Jesus, prior to the crucifixion, let's put it that way. Uh, and uh, a scholar I can cite in that regard is Richard Baucom, uh, in his book, Jude and the Relatives of Jesus in the Early Church. So it's not true to say that Jesus appeared to his uh, foes, unless you mean by that Paul alone. And then uh, it depends on Paul's own witness. Now you might have thought that, okay, uh, Paul's uh, testimony is a... a asserted elsewhere, like in the Acts of the Apostles. But I've told you about the value of Acts of the Apostles. And now there are some of the critical scholars that uh, David has been citing now date uh, Acts of the Apostles in the second uh, half of the second century of Christianity, 115. So that was long after the time of Paul. And uh, they think that the we passages where the writer says we, implying that he was there on the scene, uh, are, are, are not really true. Uh, So we do not have any proper... Verification that Jesus actually appeared to Paul. And Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 spoke about uh, the um, devil appearing as the angel of light to deceive even the very elect if that were possible. And since Paul wasn't one of the very elect at that time when the light appeared to him, uh, there still remains a question about what appeared to him. So Acts of the Apostles actually shows that when Paul, after receiving this visitation on the road to Damascus, uh, came to join the disciples, they were afraid of him. But this is Acts' way of polishing over something that is more serious. It's not only that they're afraid of him, but they're suspicious of him and they don't think that, you know, they can really trust what he's saying at that point. Which would be very weird because it would mean that those disciples who already have the Holy Spirit are afraid of Paul who now has the Holy Spirit spirit it, it wouldn't work so something is wrong there how do we get around to that the simple way forward is to recognize that there was an early christian belief that jesus was uh, taken from the tomb itself that he didn't come out and meet with his disciples but luke and others uh, tried to make it appear this way david says well there's no evolution because look at the um, the miracles you have more miracles in mark but look at the quality of the miracles I should point out to you that uh, evolution is not always in a straight line. It's, it's like a tree. It branches out. Whether we're talking about biological evolution or the evolution of cars or computers or cell phones, sometimes something develops in a certain direction but for some reason it doesn't go forward. Maybe a company goes bankrupt and their research ends and so on. So the evolution stops in a certain direction and then it branches off in a different direction with some of the original ideas are picked up and, and made bigger and stronger in another direction and so on. So what do we actually find? We find that the descriptions that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he came out of the tomb is not in Mark, but in Matthew, in Luke, and in John. And you can see that each one describes things in a way that fits their own theological perspective. So Matthew has it that the disciples go to Galilee and there they see Jesus, but they doubt it, even though they worshipped him. But Luke has the angels uh, uh, and and Jesus himself tell the disciples to stay in the city. Because that is where they will see him. And indeed, they only see him in Jerusalem. And there's no uh, chance for them to have gone to Galilee and seen Jesus and come back. For for Luke, it's only in Jerusalem. So, uh, James Dunn, a conservative Christian scholar... In his three-volume work, Christianity in the Making, he says quite plainly that Luke has changed even the statement of the angels. So where the angels in Mark says to the women, tell the disciples to go to Galilee, there they will see me. So Luke has changed it so that the angels say something different. It's no longer that go to Galilee, it's remember when Jesus was in Galilee, he told you. So, and then they remembered his words and they told the disciples. But what are they going to tell the disciples and what are the disciples to do? They are to stay in Jerusalem, not Galilee. So the, the, this is a major point. It's not a simple discrepancy here. We're not picking at, at hairs here. We're, 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 we're asking, did Jesus appear in Jerusalem or did he appear in Galilee? And there are two different narratives here, two different gospels, each with their own uh, particular acts to grind, and they're tailoring the reports and modifying the whole thing to make it look like what they're saying is, is true. Now, in Luke's gospel, Jesus appears to be very physical. He eats fish. Uh, whereas in, 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 Ma, in, in Paul's proclamation, which, Paul, uh, which uh, Dave presented as, uh, this is like an early kerygma, uh, it, it's very spiritual. Yes, Paul speaks of a spiritual body, but whatever that means... But Paul is saying that flesh and blood cannot inherit uh, the kingdom of God. So it's contrasted with, on the other hand, Luke is saying that Jesus said, touch me. Because the spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. So Paul is saying not flesh and blood. And and Luke is saying flesh and bone. So there's something wrong here. Each one is tailoring the narrative according to what fits them. We're not getting the original story. So uh, what Daniel Smith has done is to try to get us back to the original story, or at least to an earlier story. Sure, not everybody agrees with him, but he was not the first person to say this. In fact, he was able to pull on scholars before him. Uh, For example... um, Uh, The the, the scholar Reginald Fuller, who wrote uh, a book entitled The Formation uh, of the Resurrection Narratives. And he says that in in Mark's gospel, what we have here is obviously an idea that Jesus has been translated uh, from the tomb into heaven. That's an earlier idea that actually is pre-Markan. They say that this must have been in a pre-Markan passion narrative before even Mark took it. So while we have said here that Mark is the first of our four Gospels and the others can be seen as modifying Mark over time, uh, we're seeing now that even Mark has modified the previous narratives which was there before him. And one such previous narrative was the Gospel Q. And Daniel Smith is saying that in the Gospel Q, as far as it can be reconstructed, it is obvious that uh, the way in which God vindicated Jesus in the end, in the the way in which God said to everyone, look, Jesus is, is my man, uh, is to uh, raise him from the tomb. Now, Dieter Zeller, who is cited uh, uh, often in, in uh, Daniel Smith's book, a German scholar, said that when we connect this with the sign of Jonah, also in the Q Gospel, it is obvious that we're talking about a person who was rescued before dying. He came close to death, but God rescued him, and, and saved him. So that is the Muslim position which, which I've argued for here and uh, that position is seen very clearly when we recognize the evolution in the gospel. So it's not the number of miracles but the quality and type of miracles. And uh, Bruce Metzger has shown in, in his book uh, on the uh, development of the Christian scriptures that when we compare the actual miracles which are in Mark with that, the way they are represented in Matthew and Luke, you will see that Jesus becomes bigger and greater in the miracles that he does. The very same and in a similar way, when we come to the crucifixion and the resurrection, we see the development happening everywhere. And I thank you very much.
2: Well, a terrific job by our debaters so far. Um, we, they have certainly maximized their use of time. They were down to the second on each one, every one of those. We now enter the crossfire. Uh, portion. We will basically be trading back two minutes back and forth between each debater to interact with each other. For those who are fans of uh, Dr. Ali and Dr. Wood, you've seen this before. And so without any further ado, um, what did you- I'm sorry. I
3: was just wondering if the timer could sit somewhere where we could sort of talk to each other but still see them. Is there somewhere close?
2: Yeah. If, uh, if somebody here in the middle doesn't mind trading, that's very generous of you. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, we'll start with uh, Dr. Wood, your first two minutes.
3: Yeah, Shabir, um, you've been um, uh, presenting some uh, theories of some scholars. So let's say uh, that Acts was written around 115 A.D. Now that is, of course, by the the, uh, the sort of next generation of the, the Jesus seminar that that put forth that theory, and the 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 vast majority of scholars would put that much would put Acts much earlier. And so you're going with the most critical scholars you can find when it comes to the book of Acts. And I'm wondering if these scholars who are putting forward various um, skeptical theories and looking for evolutions and so on, um, how would they think of Jesus as portrayed in the Quran and whether the Quran um, is an embellishment. So the, the birth narrative of Jesus, we know that this goes back to the Arabic infancy gospel, and it gets changed in the Quran. Um, we find all kinds of stories that we can find um, uh, Dual Karnain, finding the place where the sun sets. We know where this comes from. It comes from the Alexander romances and the glorious deeds of Alexander. Um, the, the, the sleepers in the cave who sleep for 300 years and, and wake up. We know where this story comes from. It goes back to Bishop Stephen of Ephesus. And so if... Muhammad is repeatedly accused over and over and over again in the Quran of plagiarizing other sources. So we know this is an accusation in his time. And people are pointing at him saying, you're you're copying these tales of the ancients over and over. It's it's tales of the ancients. You're, You're copying fables of the men of old. When you're talking about Jesus, when you're talking about the stories of Mary, we know where these stories come from. We have actual documents. The question is, How do you think the same kinds of scholars, like the Jesus Seminar, if they were to go to the Quran and evaluate its contents on historical matters, do you think they'd accept them, or do you think they would say, this is obviously not historical?
4: Well, I I would start by saying that these are uh, skeptical and critical scholars, and they're skeptical of all faiths, not only of Christianity, but of Islam and of other religions as well. They tend to treat these uh, religions as, uh, you know, made up by human beings, uh, for good reasons, perhaps. Uh, So, I wouldn't expect them to say that the Quran is the word of God and the Quranic narrative is true, In any case, uh, I do not uh, regard the Quranic narrative as a a, a historical description of what has happened in the past. The Quranic narrative has a very important purpose of drawing lessons uh, from literature and from history. So when the Quran speaks about events or what is known from previous literature, the Quran is telling people, think about this story, think about what you know about this, and then what should you conclude from that, and it's the Quranic conclusion that it's being uh, driven home. What is important in our dialogue tonight is to recognize that the scholars that we're referring to here uh, are actually scholars who are steeped in Christian studies. They have studied the Bible in detail and they're mentioning this. So previously I mentioned uh, Marcus Borg. Uh, well, Marcus Borg is, uh, uh, is one of those who say that the Acts of the Apostles was written in the second uh, uh, century. And that places the acts of the apostles late uh, and there are other scholars and many scholars who have actually uh, put their heads together the jesus seminar has actually produced a, a book on this entitled acts and christian beginnings Uh, after they have deliberated uh, over this, just as they have put put out a book on uh, what were the actual sayings of Jesus and the acts of Jesus, a book that you have cited in the article that you wrote. So uh, these are the scholars. Some of them may now be agnostics. Uh, Some of them uh, may even be atheists, maybe closet atheists. Uh, But nonetheless, they start with a Christian understanding and they see all of the problems, and now they come back with agnosticism and uh, atheism.
3: Um, in case uh, the audience doesn't know uh, about the Jesus Seminar, um, you have conservative scholars, you have liberal scholars, um, you have scholars of all kinds of different uh, theological backgrounds. Um, Just to give you an idea, if this were a political spectrum and not a theological spectrum, the Jesus Seminar would be so far to the left they would be neo-Nazis. Now, just to be, I'm not saying they're neo-Nazis, they're some very nice, very nice gentlemen. I'm saying that that's how far off the level, off the spectrum they are. And when you go to these kinds of scholars to get your view of acts and then ignore uh, someone I would, you know, people I would say are uh, uh, much more, much more centered. So for instance, A. N. Sherwin-White. Said for Acts, the confirmation of historicity is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. So why would we go with the most extreme view of acts we can find? And notice, I didn't appeal to acts. I appealed to much, much earlier material. Um, so if this is if this is our approach. Think about what we're doing here. If, if you're going to the most radical skeptics you can find, like the Jesus Seminar, to get your view of the text, if you applied that same level, the same types of people, to the Muslim sources, and we have people like this. Mohammed Sven Kalisch was a Muslim scholar in Germany. He noticed that the methods he was applying to the Bible, he wasn't applying to the Muslim sources. He decided to apply that method to the Muslim sources, and he walked away and said... Muhammad probably never existed. I don't agree with him, but that's what happens when you apply these methods to Muslim sources.
4: Yeah, so I have nothing against Sven Kaelish if he understands the Muslim history well enough and he's able to make pronouncements of the same critical kind that are being made against the, the Bible. Uh, but it seems that Sven Kelish did not understand Muslim history well enough for him to make that uh, radical pronouncement that Muhammad did not exist, or probably did not exist, and uh, that's why other scholars have not uh, picked up on him. He has actually fallen on the wayside. We don't have other people uh, building on his work taking it further. Uh, What we have uh, in all of the religions is that you have a conservative uh, scholarship that that tries to hold on to everything that that we have traditionally held on to. And then there are others who tease the boundaries of that uh, that tradition. And uh, over time what has happened in Christianity is that those who tease the boundaries have actually broken the boundaries and they have given good evidence for why they're doing this. And the evidence is there. You don't have to be a conservative scholar to see the kind of evidence that I put before you. You can see that there's a development, that there's a change. From one man to to an angel to two angels, there's a definite change. And more than this, when you read the Gospels, you will see that in the Gospel of of Mark, the women bought spices thinking that they will come to anoint the body of Jesus. Only on their way, they're wondering, how are we going to roll the stone back? Now, if, if guards were at the tomb, this is not even a question. So Matthew has guards at the tomb, not Mark. So Matthew's guards at the tomb is an obvious invention. And that's not the only invention, but Matthew says that at the time when Jesus uh, died on the cross, uh, the bodies of the saints uh, you know, were resurrected, and later on they came out and went into the city and met where they were seen by many people. So you must imagine there were hundreds of saints walking around Jerusalem uh, within those, uh, those days. Uh, th- th- now, is this believable or is this Matthew's invention? This is obviously Matthew's invention. You don't have to be a scholar to see that.
3: Um, you say that we don't have people agreeing with someone like Mohammed Sven Kalish and so he's, he's fallen off the edge. Well, I mean, you're citing someone like, like Dieter Zeller uh, giving an obscure interpretation of the sign of Jonah in a hypothetical document. So it's speculation upon speculation upon speculation who agrees with this? Well, it certainly hasn't caught on, and so uh, by the same token, you shouldn't be quoting this. And If you are going to go with, someone, with, with people like that, then by all means, we can conclude that Muhammad never existed. Again, I don't, I, I'm not adhering to that position. I'm saying if you find the people who are at the extremes and go with their views, you end up with that sort of thing. Now, uh, take something like uh, one angel instead of you know t- two angels and one angel and so on. Uh, think about this. If you were to walk out tonight and say, and someone says, what did you do? Ah, I, I went and saw Shabir Ali. And then later on, someone else asks you, what, what, what did you do? Ah, I was watching David Wood and Shabir Ali. Well, there, you've, you've, you've embellished your story. You've got a contradiction. That's just, not, that's just not the case. Different writers can write different things for different purposes. Um, if you say, Matthew clearly invents the guard story because um, others don't mention it, well, that, that's an argument from silence. If this person doesn't mention it, then this other person invented it. And we just don't, we just don't use that anywhere that we're, if we're not applying it to the Gospels. And so, again, if we take this same method, uh, it says it here, but it doesn't say it here, and we were apply that to the Muslim sources, you could conclude that Muhammad probably never existed. Because, I mean, think about this. Shabir's calling into question documents that, even according to his, even according to his dates, are a few decades, several decades after the events. Well, the sources that Muslims use start with Ibn Asaq, at a, more than a century after the events they report, and that's your earliest detailed biographical source that you use. And Muslims say, don't believe that, it's corrupted, you have to go with later sources, Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, two centuries after the time of Muhammad.
4: What is interesting is that what the Quran is actually driving at is an early Christian belief, pre-Gospel. Something that Christian scholars are now reconstructing from the pre-Markan passion narrative and from the gospel cue that became a source for Matthew and Luke. And, uh, 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 David is asking, well, why go with Dieter Zeller? He's also fallen off to the wayside. No, he hasn't actually, because his writings have been picked up by Daniel Smith, and Daniel Smith's work, his book is actually a revision of his PhD thesis done at the University of Toronto. So this is serious work. And then Daniel Smith published another book entitled Revisiting the Empty Tomb. And John Kloppenborg, who is uh, a premier scholar on the Q Gospel today, in his book entitled Q, the Earliest Gospel, has actually picked up on the same idea that Jesus, uh, according According to the q gospel uh, must have been assumed uh, into heaven the, the term that the academics use is assumption uh, that the jesus was taken up ruptured translated transported somehow into heaven from the tomb itself so whereas christians have it that jesus came out of the tomb met with his disciples and then was ascended uh, the quran goes straight from the statement about crucifixion to the statement about ascension so there's no in between And the Quran is essentially right according to the reconstruction of these Christian scholars. They're not often the wayside scholars. They are serious scholars who have built on previous scholarship. And they're showing us the actual discrepancies which are there. It's not simple things like one angel, two angels. Who cares if there are 40 angels or 45? But you can see a development in the story. And then there are more serious ones. It's not just that somebody did not mention something. It's somebody does not leave room for some possibility of something. For example, in John's Gospel, they... Uh, Jesus was already wrapped in spices and the women were observers of this. So how did they go about buying spices thinking that they'll uh, spice up the body of Jesus? So it's two different narratives in two different Gospels, they are way contradictory. There's no way of reconciling them.
3: Um, You you say that the Quran is driving at at an earlier source, a pre-Christian source. I, I could point out the obvious and say that according to Surah 7, verse 157 of the Quran, people were still reading the Gospel in the 7th century, at first to those who are reading the Gospel. So that means that the Gospel was there in the 7th century and that it had been preserved through the 6th century, the 5th century, the 4th century, the 3rd century, the 2nd century, from the 1st century. If you're then saying that the Quran is arguing for some pre-Christian source that we no longer have, we don't have it, then this is just incoherent. You say that the Quran is striving for this earlier source, but what the Quran says about Jesus, uh, Jesus speaking as a baby, Mary giving birth under a palm tree, Jesus giving life to clay birds, we know where these stories come from, and they come from far after the New Testament Gospels. So if the Quran is, is striving for this, this early source, it's doing a really, really poor job of it and going in the total wrong, opposite direction. Now, again, if you were to go to... method that that scholars would use, the kinds of scholars you, you would cite to evaluate the Bible, if they were to look at these claims about Jesus, and they would look at the sources and see where they came from, and see how Muhammad embellished these stories, because these weren't Islamic stories, the details are changed to give an Islamic perspective, that's exactly how Shabir is saying we can't trust the New Testament. So, obviously, according to the same methodology, we can't trust the Quran by any means. And again, this is Muhammad is being accused over and over again of plagiarizing sources. So if we know he's being accused and we know the people are familiar with where he's getting these sources, then according to Shabir's methodology, we all have to reject the Quran. Or he doesn't believe that's a good methodology, in which case there goes his argument against the Bible.
4: We have to recall that our topic tonight is not, is the Quran the word of God? I didn't come out here tonight to convince Christians that they should follow the Quran. And they should take the Quran as being an accurate and true book of God. But what I'm saying to our Christian friends and to Muslims tonight is to think about the fact that serious Christian scholarship is arriving at an early Christian belief that, that Jesus was assumed from the tomb. And uh, some are even saying that he was assumed alive if we take the sign of Jonah seriously because Jonah was in the whale of the fish and he was preserved alive by God and, and, and that became a miracle for all of us. So if Jesus was in the womb of the tomb and he was then taken out alive without dying in the first place, then that seems similar to the sign of Jonah. This is what Dieter Zeller was uh, driving at and uh, i'm saying to christians and muslims think about the fact that what christian scholars are arriving at now through their independent study having nothing to do with the quran Think about the fact that that coincides with something that the Quran actually says. Now, it is true that some things that the Quran says are, are not going to be suitable to Christians because they don't find those those in their Gospels and they think that these come from apocryphal sources. Why should we trust that? But I've explained, and you've heard me, uh, so there's no need to repeat, but because David has raised the question again, the point is this. The Quran is referring to what people already know. It's like if we, we say to you, um, you know, remember how in, this Hulk got... I was, uh, you know, when he was a human, he went around shopping for a stretchable underwear and knowing, obviously, he'll need that when the time moment occurs. So uh, then somebody who doesn't know what we're talking about will think we're referring to actual persons, but you know that we're referring to a person in a movie or or in a Marvel Comics uh, description, In a similar way, when the Quran is talking about Jesus in a particular way, it could be something based on history, it could be something based on the previous literature, it's calling the attention of the people to the story and drawing out the Quranic lessons.
3: Now, did you catch that? Did you just catch Shabir comparing stories in the Quran about people like Jesus and so on to, maybe it's just talking about, as you and I would talk about, um the Hulk or something like that, Marvel heroes. Well, if that's the case, then when the Quran tells us that uh, the Jews thought they killed him but they killed him not nor crucified him, maybe this is just a kind of comic book story that we're not supposed to take seriously. Um, so um, Shabir points out that this debate isn't about whether we should follow Islam. I agree. the, the uh, Well, I mean, it is the Christian and Muslim perspectives. Um, and if we have the Christian and Muslim perspectives, we're looking for sort of a coherent view. And if we have methods, if we adopt methods, um, as we're examining a text, and those exact same methods, if we turn those uh, on our own sources, would wreak absolute havoc and lead to conclusions that we would never accept, then we should probably be looking for, um, for a better methodology. And so, I mean, uh, looking at what the Quran says, if it tells Christians to judge by the gospel, and you're saying that, you know, that doesn't that, that's not inconsistent with, with corruption. Well, just a few verses earlier in, in chapter 5, verse 43, where Jews come to Muhammad to settle a dispute, Allah answers, why do they come to you for judgment when they have the Torah? Now, if they have a, a corrupt book, they obviously need Muhammad, but they don't need to go to Muhammad because they have the Torah. And so if... Allah saying that he's going to aid the true followers of Jesus until they they become uppermost. And what that really means is he's going to let them, you know, everything they do be corrupted and we won't even have any records of it except for a speculation by Dieter Zeller. Um, And judge by the gospel means judge by something else. Uh, I just don't know how we can take this book seriously.
4: Well, I, I would maintain that we can take the Quran seriously when the Quran is saying judge by what God has revealed therein. David has actually given a context which belies the very point that he was making because the context that he describes shows that the Quran is telling the Jews to judge by their law in their book and telling the Christians to judge by their law in their book. It's not speaking about all of theological statements that are found in either the Old Testament or the New Testament. And in fact the Quran is very clear that just as we have shown that there was a development in the resurrection narratives and the Gospels. Uh, it, there is, it, it can similarly be demonstrated that there's a development in the theology among these Gospels, making Jesus bigger and greater the later the Gospel, especially so in the Gospel according to John. So when the Quran is saying to Christians, judge by that which God has revealed therein, it's not by all of the book, but you have to look at what specifically God has revealed, vis-a-vis what other people have added and changed into the Gospels. And if David is uh, is shocked by my mention of uh, the, the Hulk story, well, think about the fact that the Quran is not representing itself as a historical narrative. The Quran is not saying, okay, in the reign of such a king, and this, is, this was the year, and this is the history. The Quran is drawing out lessons. But the Gospels are representing themselves as history. And when Matthew tells us that all these saints came back to life, and they appeared to the people in Jerusalem, he's actually describing history. And since most Christians today would take this to be not history, Christians have a serious problem with their own book. And uh, the the gospel narratives are shown to be developing and inventing the stories. Think about Thomas touching Jesus in John's gospel. Now in in Luke's gospel, Jesus appeared to the 11, which means that Thomas was there. But John split the narrative into two, making Thomas absent, in which case Jesus would have only appeared to 10 uh, to, to leave Thomas for a week later when he can touch the wound of Jesus. So this is invention right before our very eyes.
2: Thank you very much. That's, uh, that's my favorite part of the debate. Uh, very well done by both debaters. <laughs> well, we'll now move to five-minute closing statements by each debater. And uh, for those that are thinking of questions, please, again, formulate your questions as you're thinking of them in 30-second snips. Our first uh, closing statement.
3: Now, Shabir said that when the Quran commands Christians to judge by the gospel, to judge by what Allah hath revealed therein, if Allah really meant to Christians who he had already told still had the gospel in the 7th century, if what he meant was, you're going to have to wait a really long time until some scholars come along We're going to be able to pick these Gospels apart, and they're going to be able to tell you what's in these uh, pre-Christian sources that you don't have. And so then then you could know about Q and pre-Mark and a bunch of other sources that we just don't have. Do you seriously think that that's what Allah was saying there? I don't see how. If that's what Allah meant, then he's completely unclear. If Allah says that he aided the true followers of jesus until they became uppermost and what that really means is that allah he tried to help them a little bit but they became corrupted and other people proclaiming jesus death resurrection and deity they took over if that's what allah meant then he's not a very good communicator because even muslim scholars yusuf ali you can look up his commentary right there in that study quran Yusuf Ali says that this refers to Christians permeating the Roman Empire and becoming uppermost. So, Allah saying, I helped the true Christians until they became uppermost. This is leading even Muslims to conclude that the true followers of Jesus were uppermost. And that's exactly what you would conclude by reading the verse. You wouldn't think, oh, he he really means that Christianity was, was corrupted very early on, and even though Allah promised to aid them, he just didn't. Um... Now, notice what's happened here, right? Shabir has thrown all kinds of skeptical critiques at Gospels, quoted uh, various scholars and so on. Guess what? If, if, If you're not on the most extreme fringe, everyone still grants what I said in my opening statement. Everyone, scholars across the board still grant that Jesus died by crucifixion. Remember, they didn't say we we might know this. They said it's indisputable. That's the position of the same scholars who would say, look at this evolutionary development in the Gospels. Those same scholars, those same scholars conclude we know that Jesus died with absolute certainty and that his disciples were thoroughly convinced that he had appeared to them. So the same critical scholars conclude exactly the facts that I use to show that Jesus rose from the dead. Which means that if you go further than them, right? If you're appealing to their works, but then you go vastly beyond them and say, what this really shows is that Jesus didn't die by crucifixion, his disciples never believed that he had appeared to them risen from the dead, then you're beyond the most radical, critical scholars. And... I think I have kind of a principle here. If in order to reject something, if in order to reject some belief, you are forced to adopt the most radical, skeptical theories in order to reject something. Because again, right? you, You can argue that, you know, there was development in the Gospels and so on. You can argue that. There are mainstream scholars who argue that. But in order to say, therefore, Jesus didn't die, therefore... Jesus' disciples didn't believe he appeared to them. Now you've gone so far beyond anything mainstream, we have to wonder why you would do that. So as a rule, if rejecting something forces you to adopt a methodology that is far, far away from mainstream, a methodology which would never allow your own texts or your own beliefs to survive criticism, perhaps you need to stop rejecting the conclusion, right? Perhaps it's time to say, well, if the only way I can get away from this conclusion is to to adopt this methodology, maybe I need a new methodology. And so, think about how easy this is. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. That's what Mark says. That's what Matthew says. That's what Luke says. That's what John says. That's what Paul says. That's what the next generation of Christian leaders said, right? People who knew Peter and John said that their message was Jesus' death and resurrection. If that was not true... Why didn't they correct it? And so all we know all along is a constant affirmation of Jesus' death and resurrection. And if you look at that and conclude, no death, no resurrection, I think you need a new methodology.
4: coming now to our final statements, uh, folks, uh, I I want to not forget where we began. I wanted to find ways in which Muslims and Christians can talk to each other and uh, to leave here as friends at the end of the night. Uh, I I didn't come out here to prove Christianity wrong, but I was hoping uh, to reach back with Christian scholars for uh, the earliest Christian proclamations, the earliest forms of Christianity, which my suspicion is would be very close to Islam and would be right. Um, And in doing so, uh, uh, I have... uh, cited some scholars and and david is asking well how, how do you take those scholars because those scholars deny so much and deny islam as well yeah i acknowledge these scholars deny islam as well uh, muslims believe that uh, god raised jesus to heaven they would deny that uh, Uh, Some would say, if you think of Jesus going up physically, well, you know, if he goes straight up, he would be in orbit. Maybe he'll land on the moon or on Mars or something like this. So a Muslim would say, well, I have faith in God. Uh, Somehow God has done this. I don't know how. I don't understand the astronomy. But everything is within the power of God. So we depart from those radical, skeptical scholars uh, when we come to our specific faith proclamations. But we want to, to, to proclaim things that the scholarship would not prove to be wrong. They might have their own suspicions and say God does not exist, and therefore God never sanctioned Jesus in the first place. And Muslims would say God existed, and God sanctioned Jesus, and God vindicated Jesus, Uh, though we don't think that he actually died on the cross, uh, but God vindicated him by raising him, either from the tomb or in some other way that we don't know, but God raised him and he's in heaven. Some others will say, but there is no heaven. Uh, so we don't take them for their skepticism, but we take them for their serious scholarship when they're looking at the history, they're looking at text, and they're telling us what their position is as a basis. So then we can build our faith on that historical basis and foundation. And David is right that these scholars widely acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross. Uh, Not not so much for the reasons that David uh, mentioned, but for the criterion of embarrassment. They say that Christians would not have invented the story if they didn't think it was true. They wouldn't have reported it. And since Christians widely reported that Jesus died on the cross, which was an embarrassment for them, it must be taken as true. Not because the whip was was like this and so on, because nobody knows the details that actually transpired in the case of Jesus himself. And uh, David says, well, uh, we're relying on Roman and, and other historians. Josephus himself, the Jewish historian from the time, says about one of his friends who was hanging on a cross and he used his influence to get him down and given medical treatment and the one of the three friends actually survived. So crucifixion does not immediately kill a person and the question was how did Jesus die so soon? So, the the the, the skeptical scholarship nonetheless acknowledges that Jesus died on the cross. Why? Because they think that this was the natural course of events. But E.P. Sanders, in his book uh, on Paul, raises a very important point. He says that today, when we hear that Jesus was out walking around and meeting with his disciples and eating fish, we would wonder, how do you know he really died in the first place? And that's my question tonight. You see, these critical scholars, they discount all of these narratives. They they wouldn't accept that Jesus came out and met his disciples and walked and ate fish and was touched and felt and so on. So they they discount that and they say, well, he really did die. And if he did appear, well, maybe in the imagination of the disciples and not really so, there would be nothing there. If you had a video camera, you wouldn't get anything on the video. Uh, So they think they saw something and we believe them, but it's not a reality. That's their position. But I'm saying, if you take the Gospels at least in in some level of seriousness, and you discount some obvious uh, embellishments, if you have as the basic core that Jesus did come back to life, and he was there with his disciples, how do you know he was dead in the first place? What was the actual proof of his death? And there's no such proof. Only some inventions like the spear thrust in his side. And when we know that, we go back to uh, the the scholarship that is digging deeper and finding now, as Daniel Smith has found, that there was an earlier Christian proclamation that Jesus was actually assumed from the tomb. He didn't actually come out and meet with his disciples in the way described in the Gospels. And that assumption from the tomb seems to correspond to what the Quran said. But God raised him to himself. And furthermore, Dieter Zeller had the idea that if you look at the uh, sign of Jonah, that would indicate that Jesus was rescued alive and before death. And that seems to correspond with what Muslims uh, believe to this day. So in short, I believe I have arrived at a position that both Muslims and Christians can feel happy with if Christians are willing to go back to the earliest Christian proclamations. Thank you very much.
2: Well, a big hand for both of our debaters tonight. They did a great job. It's pleasant to see two people coming from very different perspectives who uh, treat each other like friends ought to, and with the kind of dialogue I think that is useful. An organized, polite debate, and so I applaud them myself for this. Uh, let's go ahead and bring folks up that want to ask questions, questions for Dr. Wood on this side, questions for Dr. Ali on this side. Please keep your questions to 30 seconds. As folks are coming up, I'll just note uh, two interesting internet facts. We added about 1,350 viewers online of this, and as of today, the channel on which this streamed just surpassed Ravi Zacharias International Ministries as the number one uh, YouTube apologetics channel in the world. Mm. Uh, with over 201,000 <laughs> subscribers, so I guess I'm not the only person that finds these two gentlemen interesting. So. All right, uh, we'll start um, with questions for Dr. Wood. Uh, please identify who you are, and then, of course, your question. Okay. Uh, hello. Yeah, my name is Farouk Yusuf, and uh, question is for Dr. Wood. If we
5: replace the word Jesus with the word God, as many Christians believe Jesus and God are one in the same, then to claim God died and was raised from the dead does not seem to fit the definition of God, who has no beginning or end. Uh, God is not
3: born and does not die. Please explain. Thank you. Do it from here? Yeah, Um, yeah, and and you're you're, you're absolutely correct that if we're, if we're, we're saying that Jesus is God and then we say that Jesus died, then a natural question that would arise is um, how can God die? God isn't the sort of thing that can, that can die. Um, but you're ignoring something, which is the incarnation, right? Uh, whether you believe it or not, um, that's how we would reconcile. And to, to, to give you an idea of what this would mean, um, let me turn to the Quran here for a moment. Uh, this is a Quran, and according to Islam, at least if you're an Orthodox Muslim, the Quran is Allah's eternal word. It has no beginning. It has no end. It can't be created. Uh, it it, It can't be destroyed. And yet, I open this Quran and it has a publication date. 1994. It's made of paper and glue and ink. It will eventually fall apart. This Quran will eventually fall apart. So, think about this. How can Allah's eternal, uncreated, incorruptible word have a beginning and eventually fall apart? And the answer, according to Islamic theology, is that the Quran has two natures. It's the eternal word of Allah, but it enters into our world in a physical form made of paper and glue and ink. And so this Quran has two natures, and since it has entered into our world and taken on a physical form, it can be corrupted, it can be destroyed, even though that wouldn't make sense to talk like that of the eternal Quran. So if that's... Islamic theology, I don't know how we can look at John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the, Word was, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And since the Word, which was God, entered creation and took on a human nature, then he could die. If you say that's, that's false or illogical or incoherent, I don't know how you would do so without uh, rejecting
2: Islamic theology as well. And apologies, I forgot to mention, after the uh, two minutes for the uh, individual of whom the question is asked uh, may respond, the other debater will have a minute to respond to their response as well. So, Dr. Ali. Sure.
4: So I think uh, David here has fallen into the fallacy of equivocation in which he has on the one hand spoken about the eternal word of God. And now he's spoken about the Quran as the word of God and he's equivocated between the two meanings. So when Muslims say that uh, there is an eternal word of God, uh, we're we're talking about this as some attributes of God. That God has uh, reason, knowledge, wisdom. And some of that is revealed in the Quran. It's not that doesn't mean for us that the Quran is the word is the word of God in the sense that we're going to worship the Quran as we worship God. So the, Muslims do not take the Quran as God, as Christians take Jesus. And since Christians do take Jesus as God, that that raises the question: How did He actually die? Because God is indestructible, and He's not not expendable. So, so if one of, them, one of the three, the Trinity, dies, then that would mean that two survive and they can run the world. One becomes expendable. But uh, in, in theology, you can't say that God is expendable.
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, question for Dr. Ali. Uh, I'm Derek. Uh, first of all, thank you both for uh, participating in this debate. Um, I think there
3: was a lot of smoke. I just want to get to the heart of it. I keep going back to liars make poor martyrs. Um, so, you, and Dr. Ali, you never responded to, um, as to your theory on why these people, disciples, friends, who were running and denouncing Jesus at his death, all of a sudden came to proclaim Jesus as Lord. In addition, his enemies like Paul. Um, so you say that these legends of Jesus were later developments, but how do you explain the disciples, friends, enemies coming to saying, I'm willing to die saying that Jesus is Lord?
4: Well, your question assumes that we know what the disciples actually originally preached. And what I've been advocating is that the preaching that Jesus is God really is a later development. It's not the original story. And often Christian apologists will say, well, the disciples died because they believed that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Well, not really true. People believed in Jesus before the crucifixion. And Josephus says that the tribe of Christians continued to believe in him even after his death. So that means that Christians used to believe in him and they did not cease to believe in him. It's not like they lost all their faith. Why would they lose their faith? If we be- believe that Jesus is a-, a man of God, he performed so many miraculous works. And then some evil people uh, contrived to put him to death by hook or crook. Uh, so why would we stop believing in Jesus? We will believe in him all the more. Uh, and will disbelieve in the culprits who put him to death. So uh, the idea that the disciples forsook Jesus and fled, that too may be a later Christian embellishment by those who followed Paul. They wanted to prove that the disciples were worthless. So they departed from Jesus. Eventually Paul would become the champion of, of Jesus. So then it comes back to Paul's own testimony. And uh, why were the disciples being persecuted at all? Even Paul, why was he being persecuted? Acts of the Apostles shows in chapter 9 that when they sent Paul back to Tarsus, there was peace in Jerusalem. So he was like a troublemaker from the Jewish point of view. He was a breaker of the law and disrespecter of the temple. And so they, they wanted to get, get rid of him. Uh, David himself cited Josephus who said that James was killed as a lawbreaker. So that means from a Jewish perspective, this was a lawbreaker. They they, they, they connived with the Roman authorities to put these Christians to death. So we have a martyr, the brother of John, was uh, was killed in in Acts chapter 14. That was under Agrippa, who said that he is king of the Jews. So if Christians are proclaiming that Jesus is king of the Jews, this runs contrary. They were to be put to death.
3: Um, Notice once again... uh, because I like the image of uh, the smoke clearing, because that's actually what you had um, over the past two centuries of of scholarship in examining uh, the scriptures. Um, Scholars, from from all perspectives, came at the Christian scriptures, the the early Christian community, guns blazing, flamethrowers going, wrecking balls balls just wrecking things, Um, trying to destroy everything and burn everything down. And once that smoke cleared, the same scholars came out and said, you know, we know a couple of things here. One, we know that Jesus died by crucifixion. It's an indisputable fact. Two, we know that his earliest followers were were proclaiming that he had appeared to them. Three, we know that they really believed it because of their willingness to die. And if that's what's standing after after the smoke clears, then if you go beyond that, then... You've just gone beyond anything that that resembles mainstream scholarship. Thank you.
2: Uh, Next question. Thank
5: you. Hello, my name is Ahmed Mauer. So the question is for Mr. Wood. In the very beginning of the uh, your presentation, you said that if God saves Jesus or if the substitution theory is true, then that would make God a deceiver. So why would you attribute deception to God? if that's the case then you could attribute deception to God and Adam eating the uh, from the Adam eating from the tree you know how did, did God deceive Adam by allowing Satan to deceive him what about in the Bible and in the Torah in the Bible at least the Antichrist so God is going to allow the Antichrist to trick all of these people and deceive all of these people and look like Jesus or have some characteristics of Jesus peace be upon him so is God a deceiver in that situation as well so what's so special about God saving Jesus that makes him a deceiver that you couldn't attribute that into like any situation because if everything happens with the permission of God, then, you know...
3: Well, the, the talk of substitution theory portraying God as a deceiver isn't about God saving Jesus, right? I believe God saved Jesus, right? I believe that. So that, that's not what it's about. It's if you ask yourself, right? Christians, how many of you believe that Jesus died on the cross? A lot of people in this room believe that Jesus died on the cross. According to substitution theory, not necessarily according to Shabir's view or other interpretations of Surah 4, verse 157. According to substitution theory, where Allah took someone else, like Judas, that's a common, that's a common Muslim belief today, um, that God took someone like Judas, disguised Judas, made him look like Jesus, and then Judas is crucified, but God miraculously makes everyone think that it's Jesus. If that's true, if substitution is, if substitution theory is true, then it's not Satan coming along and tricking people. It's God tricking people, right? It's not God allowing someone else, God allowing some deceiver to trick people. It's God actively doing something miraculous to trick and deceive people about Jesus dying by crucifixion. And so on that view, if we ask ourselves why we today believe that Jesus died on the cross, it's because Allah disguised someone and made him look like it. So this is a public event, right? Some other person, someone like Judas, is being crucified. Everyone sees it, and people conclude that Jesus died. Why do they conclude that Jesus died? Because it's right there. If, we, if you can't trust your senses of what's right in front of your face, then what can you trust? And so that view that view would mean that god basically tricked the viewers into believing in jesus death and indirectly all of us and billions of people now believe in jesus death because allah deceived them so very different from you know satan or something like that So, uh, some similar reasons were mentioned by
4: Imam al-Razi in his tafsir on the Quran um, as a problem with the substitution view. Though he still followed the same view, but he did mention this as a problem. And it's because of such problems, this is one of the reasons why I do not hold to the substitution uh, view. But I want to add here that the Christian story does actually involve a problem of a similar nature as well. Because recall that... uh, uh, only James was cited as uh, one of the enemies to which Jesus appeared and I've shown that he, he was already probably a believer in Jesus before that aside from Paul but generally Jesus in the 40-day period didn't appear to outsiders according to the acts of the Apostles he only appeared to his followers who came with him from Galilee so that means that to all of the outsiders it looked like they got their man and they killed him and that was the end of him and they're victorious so the victory of Jesus was not actually demonstrated to Pilate and to the people who actually killed Jesus. So it might mean that God let them believe that they were victorious. That too is a problem. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Next question. Dr. My name is Faisal Saeed. I go here to George Mason University. Uh, my question to uh, Dr. Shabir is going to be, is there an evolution in Islam like there is in the Christian gospel? How it, uh, how it changes the meaning from Matthew to Mark to Luke and then all the way to John, where it's found reasonable or logical to change the message directly sent from God.
4: Okay. So, uh, I, I find that uh, if one looks at the hadith narratives, one would see a similar type of evolution, but not of this uh, magnitude. Uh, unless we're talking about hadiths which are outside of the, of the canonical books. But among the canonical books as well, you will see some minor changes and scholars have depicted this. They will say if you look at uh, a more authentic narrative compared with a less authentic narrative, the less authentic narrative may have something inserted, which they refer to as a mudraj, something inserted by a later narrator. So people tend to expand and embellish the story, they improve it, they make it more miraculous and so on. But uh, in in terms of the Quran, we know that the Quran has been kept intact by Muslims uh, working very hard Uh, So that the the Quran was memorized and also put down in writing. And the the resulting variations that we find today, either in recitations or in actual physical uh, manuscripts, uh, do not challenge anything that Muslims actually believe in. Uh, So, whereas if we go to the other side and we look at the kinds of development which we have been showing with the resurrection narratives, we're going from an idea that Jesus was taken from the tomb to an idea that he came out, met with his disciples, and ate fish, and this becomes a problem. You see, if, if he ate fish, and then he was going through a brick wall, then, okay, let's say his body has the capacity to go through the brick wall, but what about the fish? And then what about the clothes? And when he uh, appeared to Mary in the garden, was he leaving? Uh, was he, you know, wearing clothes? Because he must have left his grave clothes in the grave, as it was found in the grave. Then uh, some Christian interpreters think that he was actually naked, and this is why he was saying to Mary, "Don't keep clinging on to me," um, because they saw that some, you know, this has a potential for. Um, uh, well, let's not go there. But in, 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 in any case, you see that there is a development in the story. What one gospel actually acknowledges is not possible in the other gospels. It is John who says that the door was bolted when Jesus entered the room. It's not in Luke. Thank you, Dr. Ellen. Thank you.
3: Well, I would say we, we, we do have uh, evolution in the, uh, um, the text of Islam. Um, whether you're talking about um, you know, chapters coming up missing, uh, Abu Musa in, in uh, Sahih Muslim talks about two chapters of the Quran coming up missing. Aisha says that more than 100 verses came, uh, came up missing from uh, Surah 33. Um, Aisha says that uh, she had two verses of the Quran and she had the only copy and a, a sheep came and, and ate them. This is after the death of Muhammad. So you have that sort of thing, but you know, I, could, I could look at that and say well, I still agree that you know, Islam has preserved its message. But even in the, you know, the text, we, you know, at first, it's Muhammad's portraying himself as it's me and Jews and Christians united against the pagans. And then later the Jews reject him, and okay, it's me and Christians versus the Jews and pagans. And then later the Christians reject him, and then it's, it's Muslims versus everyone. Well, this is all Allah's eternal word here. Right? So why is it changing according to the circumstances that Muhammad finds himself in? And that's very strange for, for, you know, something that's eternal.
2: Thank you. you. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: My name is Ahmad, and this is a question for Dr. Wood. It's a little bit different about what we've been talking about today, but it's about the nature of Jesus. In 1 John 3.20, it says, If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. In Mark 13.32, it says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So if Jesus is God, how do you not know about the hour or the day? Thank you.
3: Um, yeah, and that, that's, I would say that's probably the, uh, the best verse to bring up if you were um, challenging the deity of Christ. Um, but this is similar to the earlier question in how, as how can God die, right? Um, if you're just saying God as he is in himself, eternally, well, that would make no sense for God to die. Uh, if you're talking about God as he eternally exists not knowing something, um, that, that would that would not make sense. If you're talking about the incarnate, the incarnate, the divine son becoming incarnate, um, well, then you have two natures, and this, this is tricky, and uh, I'm not claiming to be an expert on this, But um, if you take the doctrine of the Incarnation seriously, if you read in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus, being in very nature God, or being in the form of God, uh, did not consider that equality, that equality with the Father, something to be held onto, but um, made himself nothing, taking on human likeness. Um, If you take that seriously, then you have to ask, okay, when you have the Incarnate Jesus as as a baby, um, what level of understanding of everything does he have? does he learn as he goes along and again this would this wouldn 't make sense if you 're just talking about God as he exists in himself, but we can have these these kinds of discussions um, if we 're talking about uh, Jesus actually becoming a man and so you have different interpretations uh, of the text, but uh, i don 't see that it's that it 's inconsistent with maintaining the deity of Christ if we if we acknowledge that uh, Jesus did become a man and that if, if, if God is in some sense laying aside his glory to wrap himself in human flesh that uh, maybe he could say in those circumstances as the incarnate son he didn't know something.
4: Yeah, this question is obviously not uh, directly related to our topic and uh, I would have respected David's choice if he chose not to address this question. But since he's addressed it, I would say that this actually is a major problem for the belief that Jesus is God. Because yeah, if he doesn't know when the hour will occur, then there is at least one fact that he doesn't know and uh, God cannot uh, cannot be ignorant of one fact. And uh, the the idea of kenosis, that he somehow emptied um, himself of divinity, this itself is problematic. But this passage that uh, David cites doesn't actually prove that Jesus uh, was God in the first place. The Philippians passage has to be understood within Philippians as a whole and the Pauline corpus as a whole. And it's clear in the Pauline corpus that Paul distinguishes between God and Christ, between God and Jesus between the father and the son only the father for jesus for paul is god and he says there's only one god the father and one lord jesus christ there's a distinction they're not both god Thank you.
5: hello my name is uh, rob McEwen, um uh, dr ali i would like to uh, ask you a, a question regarding we know from history that, according to Roman law and Roman military custom, that when the Romans, a Roman soldier was responsible for executing someone, if he failed in his duty to execute that person, uh, it was his life, uh, in, uh, would be, he would be killed in, in place of the person that he, he let get off. Uh, it seems to me this is a, a serious problem for uh, any view that Jesus did not die on the cross. So I'd like your response to that.
4: Yeah, so uh, this is not the entire story. What you have said is true, that uh, the the Romans would have been responsible. And this is even demonstrated in the Acts of the Apostles when the Roman uh, soldier thought that uh, Peter had escaped prison and he was ready to take his own life. Uh, But um, the other side of it is that uh, the Gospel of Matthew relates that when the soldiers uh, who were there uh, uh, guarding the tomb... Uh, went and reported back to the Jews that this happened. The angel came down, rolled away the stone, and you know, Jesus was not there. So um, uh, now, what are they to do? The Jews, uh, uh, according to this narrative, told them, "Don't worry. Uh, if if this comes to the ear of the governor, we'll pacify him." So that means that the governor could be pacified, according to this story. And uh, in the meantime, we know from Matthew's Gospel that Pilate was doing everything, not only Matthew's Gospel, but the Gospels on the whole. He was doing everything he could to free Jesus. But the Jewish uh, scholars at the time were bending his arm and saying, if you don't do something about him, we'll report you to Caesar. In the meantime, even Pilate's wife was seeing dreams about uh, Jesus and saying, don't let any harm come to this man. So now, if we want to know what happened to Jesus on that Friday night when the tomb was not guarded... (laughs) Uh, then uh, we need to have an alibi for Pilate's wife, for Pilate, for Pilate's soldiers, especially the centurion who had declared Truly, this man is innocent when he saw him the way he expired on the cross. And we would have to have uh, uh, alibis, not only for the disciples of Jesus. Often, this, uh, the apologist says, well, the disciples were not of life. But the disciples were not the only people around. Somebody else who was not one of the twelve. And there were a, a, a pool of 70 disciples. And apart from that, many sympathizers of Jesus. What about the man in John's gospel who said that Jesus healed me. I don't care what you said, but I won't stop believing in him. Do what you want to me. So there were people who firmly believed in Jesus. Anybody could have moved the body. So uh, the disciples didn't go inquiring about who has moved the body. They just went home to ponder. Instead of going out to investigate, they went home to think, and then they saw.
3: Now, um, notice notice what just happened, right? Shabir says, we, we, we know that Pilate wanted to help Jesus. Well, well, how do we know that? Because it's in the Gospels? Um, he says, we, we, we know that, that, that Pilate's wife had a dream, and so she didn't want to improve. So-. Really, where do we know that from? The Gospels? But I thought all of these Gospels were in doubt and that they had been embellished. Wouldn't those parts of the story uh, have been embellishments? So why do we trust those details? And now it looks like we're starting to get down to the root of the methodology, which is if something fits the case that you want to make, then that's good, even if it's in Mark Matthew, Luke, John, wherever. If it fits, then it's a good detail. If if it doesn't, well, that's been corrupted. And that, I assure you, is not a good
2: methodology. Thank you. Well, we do have a quick um, couple of announcements to interject since we have so many questioners. We'll, we'll keep going until whoever is in charge here says that we have to stop asking questions. But if you don't get to ask your question, uh, Dr. Wood will be at Reston Bible Church tomorrow at 9 a.m., in Solid Ground. Um, it's in room 250A. It's also online at uh, solidground.restandbible.org If you want to uh, send in your questions to him remotely as well, you can do that on uh, Solid Ground's Facebook page or Twitter. Dr. Ali is invited as well. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, sure I'll be flying out early. <laughs> All right, sorry to hear it, but was uh, always, welcome uh, as well. And then there will be an event tomorrow night with Dr. Wood at 7 p.m. in Haymarket, uh, for those who are interested in that, please contact Will Gaines here uh, afterwards. So sorry for the announcements, but if you don't get to ask your question in the interest of time, you get another shot, at least at Dr. Wood, and I'm sure we'll see Dr. Ali again uh, in the future. Uh, I am apologize. Please ask your question. Hi, David. How are you doing? Hello. Hi. I have a
0: question. Uh, since the uh, main purpose of Jesus, peace be upon him, was to come and die and crucified, why would he cry um, to his Father, God Almighty, to save him from his um, crucifixion, and actually, his prayer was uh, heard, and he was saved. Hebrew five uh,
3: seven. Um, well, th- this is this is another perfect um, example of sort of uh, selecting texts. So, if we go to Hebrews, and so keep in mind that the the claim is that in Hebrews, um, we read chapter 5, verse 7, that uh, Jesus asked God to save him from death. And Muslims interpret this to mean that he asked God to save him from dying. And that would just be completely inconsistent with the letter of Hebrews. So uh, Hebrews ends, uh, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, notice, brought up Jesus from the dead um, in Jewish thought death is actually a place that, that, that you go to so if you were just reading Hebrews 5.7 and you ignored everything else that's in Hebrews by the way it says over and over and over again that he died um, and you just read that verse you might say oh he, he, he saved him from death um, well that can either mean he saved him from dying or that he saved him out of death in other words he died and then he saved him from death So if you can interpret it either way, what do you do in the case of an ambiguous verse? Well, you go to the surrounding verses, and it's all throughout Hebrews that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And so um, I would would simply say that the prayer, according to Hebrews, according to Hebrews, the prayer would be for God to save him from death through his resurrection from the dead, which would be perfectly consistent with what we find uh, in the Gospels. Oh, I still have 15 seconds left. <laughs> no, it's okay. Go ahead. Do you want to continue? Go ahead. No, Dr. Um So
4: the, uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Price, in his book uh, Deconstructing Jesus, uh, uh, says, uh, with reference to this Hebrew, pa- Hebrew passage, Hebrews 5.7, that uh, Muslims uh, were, were the first to actually make a point about this. And when he thinks about it, he realizes that the Muslim uh, has a point here. That the passage is really saying that Jesus was heard in that which he feared. And uh, in fact, uh, the, the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Synoptic Gospels show what Jesus was praying for, to be let this cup pass away. And, but of course, surrendering his will to, the, to that of the Father. But notice that in John's Gospel, Jesus said, declares that he will never pray like that because it's for this reason he came into the world. He came to die, and he's going to lay down his life of his own accord. This is the Johnian picture of Jesus. It's not the synoptic picture. Synoptic picture, he wants to be saved from the cross. Johnian picture, he's not going to pray like that. Uh, so Hebrews is confirming that Jesus actually was heard in the prayer, and God did what Jesus was asking for, which was to be saved from dying in the first place.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Wood. Thank you, Shabir Salaam, in the name of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus told us in John's gospel, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay his life down for his friends. John also agreed with this in his first letter in the fifth chapter, and this is a testimony
5: that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. We believe as Christians that God has given us a promise, an assurance, a confidence that we'll be in his presence because of the resurrection. If Allah loves you, what promise has he given
2: to you for your assurance?
4: Yeah. Well, in the Quran, God tells us, in whoever says that our Lord is only God and remains steadfast on that, the angels will descend upon the, such persons saying to them, have no fear nor shall you grieve. We will be your friends in this world and in life hereafter. And in the hereafter, you'll have whatever your souls desire. So that's a simple proclamation of faith that God is is on, our only God. As for the idea that Jesus uh, was in this way laying down his life for the, his friends, uh, this, uh, as we have shown in my answer to my previous, the previous question, is it, it, a later uh, idea about Jesus. And uh, the earlier depiction of Jesus was not like that. Uh, Daniel Smith makes the important point that when the scholars are thinking of assumption as a category that God raises the person up into heaven, as opposed to resurrection, with assumption, he's taken up into heaven and he has a future role. Resurrection is a different picture. He comes out of the tomb. He has come back to life. uh, He's not going to die again. And then he's here with you. Like, what's the point of ascension now? Why does he have to ascend? This is why Matthew's gospel has Jesus saying, I'm with you always till the end of time. So he's not going anywhere. So uh, Mark's gospel, uh, Jesus is going to appear in in Galilee, though that is not being described. In Matthew's gospel, he does appear in Galilee. uh, But then he never ascends. In Luke's gospel, he ascends on the Easter day. In John's gospel, he ascends uh, earlier that same day. In Acts of the Apostles, he ascends 40 days later. But what's the point of ascending if he's still always around? Like he's supposed to be in the hearts of Christians according to the gospel, according to John, right? And in John's gospel, he breathes the Holy Spirit on uh, the Christian uh, following on the Easter day. But in Acts of the Apostles, it's 50 days later. So which is right? What you can see is that these various writers have written what ideas came to them and what they felt was uh, cohesive with their picture of Jesus. They wrote that. They're not dependable ideas. The dependable idea is that Jesus was a man of God, and when his enemies tried to kill him, God rescued him and raised him to himself, and God will send him one more time in the future. This is a Muslim idea and an early Christian idea.
3: Uh, The question was about... um... The, the promise that, that Allah has made. But uh, if you meant that as a, as a question about you know, promise of, of, of assurance, uh, I think that would be in question from the Muslim sources. Um, chapter 46, verse 9 of the Quran, uh, Allah commands Muhammad to say, I am no bringer of newfangled doctrine among the messengers, nor do I know what will be done with me or with you. So Muhammad doesn't even know what Allah is going to do with him. Now the reason that's important is because uh, we know how that was used historically um, we have a hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, um, where uh, a man named Uthman, not the Caliph Uthman, uh, dies. And a woman says, congratulations, you're in paradise. And Muhammad says, uh, you don't know where he's going. And she says, but, but he's one of the best of Muslims. Huh? If, he, if he's not making it to paradise, who can? And Muhammad said, I don't know what Allah will do with me. So Muhammad, the greatest of Muslims, was was even in, didn't know what Allah is going to do with him. Uh, neither did Abu Bakr.
5: hello dr. David Wood um, so my name is Omar I'm a freshman here at George Mason University and I presume that you believe in the Trinity correct right yeah. and uh, therefore that being true if we presume that to be true then doesn't it mean that God sent himself then killed himself thus committing suicide and then uh, and then therefore if he, suicide being a sin, meaning that God committed a sin in order to remove the sins of humanity, and therefore that being a contradiction in the whole cycle of things, doesn't that mean that God is also limited in that he's bound by sacrifice in order to remove sins from humanity?
3: Um, well, as far as you know, God being bound in the way he would need to do things, um, Christian theology um, has some beliefs uh, about God, that, that God is is um, he's perfect and is also perfect in his attributes. So he's perfect in justice. He's, he's perfect in love. But if you believe in a perfect God with perfect attributes, you run into a problem of what God's going to do with sinners, right? Um, and that would go something like this. Uh, if you've, have you ever sinned? Have you ever done something wrong? Sure. Okay. Yeah. If you've sinned, then if God is, is perfect in justice, then he, he, he would need to punish for our uh, sins if God is, is perfect in, in love and mercy, he would want to forgive us. And the, the Muslim solution to this, this the, the problem of sin is to sort of diminish Allah's attributes, right? Allah's justice isn't perfect. Um, Allah can let some sin slide. He can, he can just forgive yeah. you of certain things, which means, which means yeah. at the end of time, according to Islam, there is there's some sin that has been unpunished. Well, that wouldn't be perfect justice. Um, at the same time, according to the Quran, Surah 3, verse 32, Allah has no love for unbelievers. So uh, God isn't as loving as we might like him to be. According to the Quran, you love Allah first. You believe in Muhammad first, and then Allah will love you. And so these attributes aren't what 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 I would call perfect. And But you need to do something in order to uh, deal with the question of how is a, a, a God going to deal with sinners. Um, the, Christian, the Christian solution is somewhat different. It's that um, God maintains his, his perfect justice. At, at the end of time, all sin has been punished. Either you pay for it yourself or Jesus paid for it at the cross. And that, he, and yet God paid the price for us. So that was as loving as it could possibly be, be uh, possibly be.
4: Yeah, so uh, this questioner has also pointed to the problem of uh, God uh, committing suicide. And if you say, well, this was his son, so it's not God himself, well, then it would be something like what Steve Chalk warned against in his book, The Last Message of Jesus. He advised Christians to not say that uh, Jesus died as a substitute for us to appease the wrath of God because this would amount to something like cosmic child abuse. Uh, So there are problems with this conception. Uh, And and the solution for this is to recognize that when we speak about the justice of God, it's the justice between people. God is going to make sure that justice is done between people. So if we commit injustice to somebody else, we have to right the wrong before God forgives us. Uh, But that's different from our wrong done to God. God does not demand perfection from us. He is perfect, but he knows that we are imperfect, and he is allowing us to sin against him, and, and he is willing to forgive, especially if we are repentant. And even if we are not repentant, he might forgive of his own accord. Nothing is wrong here, and God doesn't
2: have to die, and he doesn't have to kill his son. Thank you. Um, two quick announcements. looks like my utopian paradise of never-ending questions is not actually going to work here. So uh, <laughs> it looks like we have a time for about four more questions per side. would ask that the questions do stick to the topic uh, that was under debate tonight. If you want to ask other questions, come tomorrow. Or put it in online Uh, for those that are still in line that are that are past that kind of cutoff point I would encourage the folks in line to look to consolidate your questions decide what the best questions are to ask the folks up front and uh, and come together with your all-star questions thank you
4: hello okay my name is Devante. I'm a student at Liberty University Uh, my question is for you obviously Um, being that Allah is all wise and wanting people to submit only to him Why would he point people to corrupt and heretical literature, namely the Christian gospel text, where therein, in the
5: Christian's text, is found early creedal statements of Jesus' deity, crucifixion, and resurrection?
4: Okay. So it's an interesting question and it harkens uh, back to some, a point that David made, like what is our uh, methodology and why is the Quran directing the people to the Gospels? And th- th- does the Quran mean you have to follow modern scholarship? Well, not the people at the time, obviously, because they didn't have modern scholarship. But the Quran is asking Christians at that time to use their scriptures and at first at, at least be faithful to their own scriptures. So if if there's something in their scriptures that indicates that Isa Alayhi or Jesus is not God and they're believing that Jesus is God, now this is a major problem, so the Quran is directing them back to study their own scriptures in which they will see that Jesus is not God. He didn't know when the last hour will occur. He says uh, in in the scripture, the father is greater than I, which means that he's not the greatest possible being. Uh, He he dies, uh, which means that he cannot be God because God is uh, immortal. He cannot die. Uh, He says, why have you forsaken me? Which means that he sees himself as other than God and thinks for a moment that God has forsaken me. So all of these statements are the main Uh, issue that the Qur'an wants to bring to Christian uh, uh, consciousness, that there is only one God. So start with that. And if Christians would have come to that, they would have had a better appreciation of the Qur'an. Uh, And if they wouldn't come to that, then what's the sense of preaching anything else to them? If they're not going to listen to their own scripture, what else are they going to listen to? So that's the Qur'an's main point. Now, of course, scholarship has developed and now we're able to use the modern scholarship. But that doesn't mean that I'm saying that the Quran was saying to Christians at the time that they had to use their modern scholarship. They had to just simply look at their own uh, scripture at the time. Now, at the same time, uh, God is tolerant and God is willing to tolerate people as they are, perhaps because that's the best that he can expect of people at the time. So he lets them be. And Paul makes mention of this in his letter to the Romans that pe- you know people were doing all kinds of wicked things and God let them be. But now the message is here for you. So in a similar way, the Quran is giving allowance for people uh, based on their intelligence, their 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 knowledge uh, and awareness and so on to be as they are and uh, calling them to a higher calling. Thank you.
3: Uh, notice Shabir just said that you know. God sees what you know, people are doing and so on, he, he, he just lets them be. Well, that's not what the Quran says. The Quran said that Allah aided the true followers of Jesus until they became uppermost. So Allah is actively doing something there to make them uppermost. And when you read that, you would think the, the Christians who became uppermost, again, according to Yusuf Ali, refers to Christians taking over the Roman Empire, those are the ones that Allah aided. Um, if you read Surah 5, verse 47, without inserting other ideas into it, you would never walk away saying, this is telling me to you know, go to the Bible and then pick things out of it and so on like that. Uh, when Allah says that we have no ground to stand upon, if we do not stand upon the Torah, the gospel, and all the revelation that has come to us, if he really means apply some seriously skeptical methods to the Torah and the gospel until you walk away with something looking like Islam, then that's, that's just a horribly unclear mode of interpretation. So, uh, if that's what Allah means, and Shabir is saying that's what Allah is trying to get us to do, if that's what he's trying to get us to do, I can think of much better ways to get that message across, namely by just saying what you mean. Thank
2: you. Thanks very much. Good evening. My name is Barack. Um, On any given debate, the burden of proof is upon the one making a claim of objectivity, and I don't think it's on the defense of negation. I think you fail to do that on an objective academic level today. You originally claimed that there are non-Christian atheist historians that argue your point of uh, proof, And it would have been an objective argument if you decided to use that, but instead you decided to center your arguments on dogmatic Christian textures. Can you frame your uh, question, please? I have like 30 seconds to get to it. Um, Then Dr. Ali gave you probable
4: cause to disregard the objective validity and
2: show you the infallibility of the testimony. You need to ask a question. The question
5: is as follows. Given the fact that he gave us probable reason to doubt the infallible testimony of the Gospels, why should anyone take biblical claims as infallible Word of God when there is clear evolution
2: of narrations and ideology and theology?
3: Um, well, as far as the burden of proof, the, the topic is, did Jesus rise from the dead? The Christian and Muslim perspectives, so both perspectives are on the table as which is the more reasonable perspective. Um, as far as Shabir um, arguing for, for an evolution in the Gospels, um, that's completely irrelevant to my case. right? The, uh, the, when, when the scholars that I quoted say that it's indisputable that Jesus died by crucifixion, uh, those, those scholars that I quoted were atheists and agnostics and, and Reza Aslan, a Muslim, right? They're, they're, they're not saying, oh, let's discover whether this is an infallible text, and then we will believe in it. Historians don't do that, right? So, if we ask, did Jesus die on the cross, that's a historical event. If we have, following your, following your reasoning, we can't know anything from history unless it comes from an inspired book that can be uh, established fully is the Word of God. No one does history like that. So the fact that that's the burden of proof, first, show that all every text you would quote is the infallible Word of God, well, you don't need to do that in order to establish that Jesus died by crucifixion. And you don't need to do that in order to know that the disciples were willing to die for their beliefs. And you don't need to do that in order to know that the disciples were claiming that Jesus died by crucifixion. Um, Shabir claims in evolution, but guess what? What what does Jesus say in Mark? Mark 9.31. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. That's at the beginning. That's foundational. And that's not even the earliest source. The earliest source is Paul, where contrary to the evolution theory, you have the most appearances to the most people, and that's the earliest. And so, I'm just approaching this, obviously as a Christian, I believe in the inspiration of text, but in establishing certain historical details, I would approach that just like anything else, and that's how I did it before I was a Christian, and that's why I became a Christian.
4: Indeed, Paul's proclamation is earlier than, than that of the Gospels, but notice that his claim that Jesus appeared to 500 at once is an evolutionary dead end. It doesn't go anywhere. Nobody else picks up on that and says, yeah, these are the 500. It's not there in the Gospel according to Luke. It's not there in the expanded narrative and Acts of the Apostles where Jesus appears over a period of of 40 days. So who, when did Jesus appear to 500? So uh, this is an evolutionary dead end. As to which position uh, emerges as more reasonable, and I'm interested in, in this because uh, this is how David summarized our topic today. Now, uh, the Christian view is that Jesus died, and this is proven by citing so many scholars, but then the idea that he resurrected from the dead is denied by the very scholars. So all we have is Jesus dead on the cross. That's it. He might have appeared as a hallucination, but nothing more. The Muslim position that Jesus might have escaped death on the cross, this is quite reasonable, it's possible, and that God took him from the tomb, this is actually quite reasonable, and it does not upset anything historically that we know. And it allows for Jesus to appear from heaven as a vision to his disciples. This is a very reasonable and simple uh, belief. Thank you, Dr.
2: Thank you, guys. Thank
5: you. My name is Brandon. Um, Thank you both for being here. I guess my question is a little similar, but I'll ask it anyway. Uh, Dr. Shabir... Um, you mentioned, I believe, a couple times that uh, the Qur'an is not an actual book of, you know, not historical narrative, but is supposed to provide lessons. If that is actually the case, then should we really take it seriously concerning the, I would say, the non-death of Jesus Christ in the Qur'an,
4: if there's so much historical claim backing up that he actually did die? Yeah, well, if, if there were um, actual historical uh, uh, provable statements that, uh, to show that Jesus actually died on the cross, then I would want to interpret the Quran in the light of that history. Uh, But as we have seen, uh, there is much in the Gospels uh, to indicate that perhaps Jesus did not die on the cross. And people just actually developed the idea that he died on the cross later on. Uh, Because look at the Psalms that they were quoting to prove what happened to Jesus. They are Psalms that indicate that that the person was rescued. And it's not one Psalm. And it's not only the Psalms. It's also Isaiah 52, 53. How does it begin? Isaiah 52 verse 13 speaks about one who will be rescued from death, and Isaiah 53 shows that this person will be, have a prolonged life. This was interpreted as referring to Hezekiah, who in Isaiah 38 itself is shown to have come close to death, but God added 15 years to his life so that he could have children. Uh, So Jesus we we know uh, from the gospel narratives did not have children but in the Muslim conception it is possible that when he comes back he will marry and have children. The Muslim conception actually fits the prophecy in Isaiah better because his life is extended and he is uh, uh, able to see his children. Uh, If we look at the Psalms 22 which is quoted with reference to the cross that shows a person being rescued. We look at uh, luke saying jesus said into hand you hands i commit my spirit from psalm 31 that too shows a person who will be rescued before dying so all of these indicators are there in the bible so it is a problem for for david not for me uh, david is saying but shabir is just picking the things that he wants from the bible but the point is that david is saying let's go with the bare facts that the scholars attest to but then after you know those facts come back and accept everything that you know from the bible But, of course, that is the problem. If you come back to accept everything you know from the Bible, you see all of these indicators staring you in the face, showing that Jesus must have survived and not died.
3: Uh, Is that what everyone heard me argue? Um, I argued for a couple things. Basically, things that we can know, uh, things that we can know historically, things that uh, we know why we believe them, and uh, the scholars across the board uh, agree to them. And we see them in our earliest sources. We see them... Uh, in the next generation of Christians who knew the apostles and would have known if they were saying something that was out of line with what Peter and John and so on were saying. And every step of the way, it's death and resurrection. And where does Shabir go? To the Psalms, prophecies in the Psalms. How does he know that Christians were quoting them? Because they quoted them in their sermons, the same sermons where they preach Jesus' death and resurrection. And then uh, he he just cited Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, as about Jesus. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested for he was cut off from the land of the living? If that's not dead, I don't know what is. Over and over again, sources that say he died, somehow they mean he didn't die. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, Dr. David Wood. Um, My question
5: is, um, what is the Gospel of Q? Is it a hypothetical? document? Is it an actual document that exists? Do we have any evidence for it?
3: Um, Well, Q is hypothetical, Um, and basically here's what you have. You have Mark, and Matthew and Luke are using portions of Mark, which traditionally has been ascribed to the teachings of Peter given to Mark. Um, So Matthew and Luke incorporate some of this material, but it looks like Matthew and Luke are using something else because they're quoting similar stories and claims uh, that they're saying very similar things and, and citing them in, in very similar ways. And so the idea is, since they're not in Mark, there must have been some sort of common source. And I mean, you could, you could say, well, Matthew was getting it from Luke or Luke was getting it from Matthew, um, but most scholars believe that there was some source, whether it's oral or whether it was document so I have no problem believing that there was uh, some sort of sayings document and and Q is is sayings it's it's things Jesus said that's why when Shabir says well you don't have the you don't have uh, the resurrection in there well it's a collection of things Jesus said people are writing down sayings of Jesus Um, so I have no problem arguing to Q right no in other words art saying here are some sources here's an explanation for why we have this common material in Matthew and Luke Um, arguing that there was a Q arguing to Q I do have a problem arguing from Q, right? So now that we know what Q is, let's, ar- let's make arguments based on what it, it doesn't contain. Uh, because you don't have the document, right? You know some things that are in the document, but you don't have the document to say what, what isn't in it, right? I mean, imagine if someone jotted down 10 sayings from this debate tonight and then went out and then the debate was lost. And then came back later and said, um, well, we can make we, we can show that David and Shabir didn't discuss this. Well, how would you know? You only have ten quotes. And it's similar with Q. You can know that there's a source because you have a method that allows you to identify certain things in the source, but that doesn't allow you to tell you what the source is. And no one claims that we have all of Q.
4: While the scholars are very clear that we don't have all of Q, their best reconstruction of what they can reconstruct of Q leads them to the belief that the Q document does not depict Jesus as having died and resurrected from the dead, which is a very strange conclusion uh, given what we know from the Gospels because we would expect that every Christian doctrine would start by saying that Jesus died and rose again from from the dead. How come it's nowhere in in Q? And uh, in in looking at what is there actually from Q, we have the statement uh, indicating that Jesus will disappear and then reappear. And this disappearance and reappearance language fits within the paradigm of what is called assumption in the technical language. This is where Daniel Smith uh, started with, and uh, and he has then uh, shown other evidence to indicate that this was a very early belief that Jesus was assumed uh, into heaven and that he has a futuristic role, which is not the same as resurrection. Resurrection, he comes back from the dead. He's here with you. He's not going any place. Just like Matthew says, "I'm with you all always." Okay,
5: Uh, my name is Stephen. Thank you, Shabir and David, for coming out tonight. Um, Shabir, my questions obviously to you. Um, We know what the NGO at the time of Muhammad was. We know it's a Syriac Peshitta. We know it was Syriac Christians that Muhammad was constantly going back and forth with. We know there was no Arabic Bible at that point. Everything he heard was by oral translation. So, and Muhammad's uh, kadir's cousin was a monk who wrote the Gospel in Hebrew as Allah wished, that's in Sahih al bukhali so, how can Muhammad come to affirm or fulfill something when uh, he obviously contradicts it?
2: Hmm. Uh,
4: so, now, the, it, it is interesting that in the Muslim view, Muhammad is an inspired person from that time. God inspired him to proclaim a message, and the message came out in the form of the Quran <coughs> as we have it now. Uh, And and this Quran is uh, actually proclaiming something about Jesus which modern scholarship is actually recovering to be an earlier form of Christian preaching before Christians started to say and insist on on the belief that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Uh, Moreover, there are indicators in in the Christian writings now uh, which uh, go against the grain of the Christian preaching. So David is asking, well, how do you take one thing and ignore the other thing? How do you say that we don't know what peter actually preached and we take the fact that he was preaching the psalms well the fact that he was preaching this psalms goes against the grain of what the writer is trying to prove and when something goes against the grain of what the writer is trying to prove to you that is probably authentic if it goes with what he's trying to prove to you perhaps he just included that because he wants it fits with his proof if it's against what he's proving probably that's authentic all of these Psalms and so on are there against the grain of what they were trying to prove. And the Isaiah text, yeah, that fits within the view that I have described as well. Because Jesus, by being presumed dead, coming so close and being put in the tomb, in a way he's cut off from the upper world, which is the land of the living, as Jews would have perceived of it at that time. They would have thought that he went into Sheol. And uh, but by God raising him up into heaven and keeping him there. We don't know in what state God keeps, keeps him in, in heaven. But in a way he's cut off from the land of the living here as well. As for the prophecies that indicate that another prophet will come. Uh, that too uh, goes against the grain of what the writers were trying to prove. They were trying to prove that Jesus is the be all and end all. But we still see that there are indicators in the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments. That someone else will come after Jesus. And we think that that one is the prophet Muhammad on whom be peace.
3: Well, the, the one who said someone else would come, um, if you're talking about John, said um, that he was the Holy Spirit. So, um, if you're going to the text and, and you're ignoring that, I don't know why you just don't throw out the text. Um, Isaiah 53 verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living. If that means he's alive the entire time, then I don't know what words mean anymore. Um, if the Quran, over and over again, like a beating drum, tells Christians what to believe, don't believe that Jesus is God, uh, don't believe that he's the Son of God, uh, uh, you, you pay for your own sins. The Quran is very clear on where it disagrees with Christians. If it never once clearly denies that Jesus died by crucifixion or rose from the dead, and never once criticizes the gospel, and yet tells Christians to obey the gospel, we can only conclude that the Quran is not disagreeing with us on those points. But Shabir is saying, no, that's exactly what the Quran is disagreeing with us
2: on. Thank you. I regret that this is a great case. But we only have time for one more question, either side. I apologize.
3: Love, no questions from women
2: I'm just <laughs> <right>. <laughs> I, uh, no, How, out. how, how out. dare you? So what? <laughs> what don't I invite, don't out. invite me back. <laughs> Is note that uh, I have controlled none of the lines that come up here. If the gentleman ahead of you would like to defer to you, that's up to them. But I don't think that it's proper to accuse the uh, the folks up front of participating in that. Uh, uh, same thing here. Same thing here. Uh, that's the most interesting challenge I've heard to date. <laughs>
3: hey, hey, uh, hey th- this side invited the woman to the front. <laughs> Be a gentleman, dude, be a gentleman. Okay.
2: Okay. I've been standing here since the past 30 minutes. Well, unfortunately, we're actually well past time. So if you would like to submit your question, again, we'll have Dr. Wood answer them tomorrow morning. And I bet you Dr. Ali would be happy to do so via email. I'll be happy to read it, too. So feel free to submit that to us afterwards, and we'll take care of it. Yes, sir. Um, Before I begin, at the end of the day, sister, I do apologize. But at the end of the day, you'll be over here, but I just really wanted to ask my question. I do apologize.
3: And um,
4: I'd just like to thank you guys for attending this. I enjoyed every bit of it. I'd like to thank you both. My question is, how do we understand the claim that Jesus, peace be upon him, was crucified on a cross, tree or pole, in light of Deuteronomy, chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, in Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13, which states that whoever is hung on a tree or pole or cross is cursed.
3: Well, uh, I'd say you're about that close to understanding the gospel, right? Because we know, uh, we know Jesus is, is righteous, according to both the Bible and the Quran. Muhammad, in the Hadith, said that Satan touches everyone who comes into the world, but he couldn't touch Jesus or his mother. Everyone else, Muhammad, everyone, Satan could touch him, but not Jesus. And so, you're right, how do, how do we reconcile our belief that Jesus was righteous with the Old Testament claim that anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed, and it seems that we would have to say that Jesus was cursed in spite of being righteous, and that's exactly what the, what the Gospel says, right? The one who was without sin became sin for us. So, um, yeah, if, if, you, if, you, if, we, if we left those things out, and you would wonder, oh, was Jesus cursed? Well, Jesus was righteous, and yet he was cursed. Um, And notice, he was hung on a tree, according to Shabir as well. So he's under a curse, according to both views on on the stage tonight. And so if Jesus was under a curse, well, what do we do there? In in Christianity, he's under a curse for a reason, right? He's under a curse for a reason, because he's becoming a curse for us, right? Uh, So that we can be forgiven. Um, As far as... Uh, other interpretations, I, I guess he's a, he's under a curse because he was hung on a tree, but, I, I don't know, uh, Shabir's about to answer, so he can explain what, what he would uh, think about Jesus being hung uh, on a tree.
4: I agree that Jesus was righteous, and uh, I don't agree that he was a curse. Um, and the Deuteronomy passage actually refers to a person who was hung justly for his crimes. So, he's under the curse of God, according to Deuteronomy. Paul misunderstood this and though Jesus was unjustly hung uh, Paul said uh, Jesus became a curse but but he's a curse for us but that is problematic because as dr. William Lane Craig uh, asserts you cannot just simply say that Jesus got up and and rose from the dead on his own God had to raise him from the dead but as I pointed out to him for God to raise him from the dead God has to want to raise him from the dead and if all we know is that he died under the curse of god according to your scriptures you have no reason for thinking that god would want to raise the accursed person from the dead who died under the curse of his own law and so you have a contradiction here and it's a major one and that's another reason for believing that uh, jesus was not raised from the dead and it's better to think that he did not die in the first place again thank you guys so much appreciate it
0: My name's Carol, and I'm thrilled to have traveled here from Roanoke, Virginia, to be here for this event, and I'm just really thankful to both of you. My question is, both Islam and Christianity uphold the extremely significant value of words. As individuals, universally, we determine our actions based on the words we believe to be true. My question is, how do you, as a representative of Islam, define the word truth
4: well you know Pilate asked what is truth and nobody has given the answer to that yet um, so it, it's it's not easy to define truth but it's one of those things that we that we know when we see it Uh, so, uh we, we do so often by in by by comparing things and we know that this is more true than the other thing uh, we we do so by our observation uh, we either know something to be true because we saw it ourselves uh, or, or one of our other senses uh, Um, became aware uh, we became aware through one of our senses or we have been informed by some reliable uh, reporter so we don't know what is happening in China now unless some report reliable reporter tells us uh, what what is happening there so now we want to know about the truth of our question here tonight Uh, uh, Jesus resurrected from the dead who saw that nobody actually claims that they saw him resurrecting from the dead it is an inference that they made that Jesus resurrected from the dead. As I said, Peter went home to ponder uh, what is the meaning of this empty tomb instead of going out to investigate. Now, we should have gone to look at reliable reporters. Who was the last person who was seen with Jesus? Let's talk to Joseph of Arimathea, who is said to have buried him. Let's talk to Nicodemus, who was said to have wrapped him in spices before his burial. Who were the last persons with Jesus? And by the way, where did Judas go? And why are there two conflicting accounts One in Acts of the Apostles and one in Matthew about how Judas actually died. Did did Judas go and repentantly uh, uh, go pay some last respects to Jesus? Is that why the sudarium, the face cloth, was actually thrown on the side? Did somebody actually go into the tomb and do do what Elisha did to to revive this body, laying on him with eyes to eyes and mouth to mouth? Was there some mouth to mouth resuscitation involved? That's why the sudarium was on the side. So we don't have actual reporters to tell us what happened there. But we have clues. And the clues, like the sidorium on the side, shows that somebody may have tried to revive Jesus and Jesus, perhaps, did not actually die in the first place.
3: Uh, You asked what what truth is. Of course, you can say that according to the Quran, Allah is the truth. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Um, uh, As a philosopher, I would say that uh, whatever corresponds to reality is truth. If something doesn't correspond to reality, then then it's not true. The disciples went to horrible, bloody deaths um, after enduring torture and prisons and mocking and so on. Uh, So to claim that, well, you know, they didn't investigate very carefully. If they hadn't investigated very carefully, if they weren't absolutely sure through Jesus appearing to them over and over and over again, they had a lot of time to rethink whatever they saw. Uh, They had years to think, did I, really see the, did, did I really have a good reason to uh, believe I saw the risen Jesus? The fact that they never wavered until the end shows that whatever they saw, they saw something powerful. And Shabir's explanations, you know something rising out of a tomb just doesn't do that. They saw Jesus, and that's the only thing that can account for their confidence. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Until we have time for one last question, we'll give that last question to our Muslim friends. My <clears throat> name is
3: David
5: Davies. Uh a question to both of you gentlemen. I think you did a fine job. Two and two. I have this question.
4: What was the mission of Christ given to him by our Father?
3: Do we want to shorten this since this isn't the... a on one minute One say. minute each. Okay. So we're gonna go one minute each. Mm-hmm. Do you want to start? Sure. Okay. Oh, I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, man. <laughs> oh, it's always fun having the last word. Um, but uh, you know, if, if we if we look at the if we look at the text, that um, you, you can say Jesus came for lots of reasons, right? Because he's doing lots of things, he's teaching, and so on. Um, but he says that. Uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's in Mark, the earliest gospel. Um, and you find a, you know, the, the, the same message, that, that this had a reason, this had a purpose. And so that would be the point according to Christianity. One of the points, but he laid that down as a, as a primary point. And if Jesus came f- for some other reason, right, to to preach Islam or uh, to win Muslim disciples, I don't see how you can avoid the conclusion that he just failed because that's not the message people got
4: so in in my perspective jesus came to preach and in one of the gospels he says let me go and preach to those people as well because that is why i have come uh, that is more true to the mission of jesus than to say that he came to die as a ransom for many the, the idea of a ransom as we've seen is already problematic it would mean that god is letting the innocent uh, 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 die for the sins of the guilty and, uh, and, and no no justice system in the world is going to do this uh, put a, a, an innocent man on the gallows uh, for the sins uh, of, of the criminals. If God wants to forgive, he can forgive. And if Jesus is offering himself to die in the place of the guilty, God is even more merciful, and, and he can easily forgive the people, just as Jesus wants them to be forgiven. So the idea that Jesus uh, came to die for our sins is, is not really uh, realistic. And finally, in closing, I would like to give special thanks to the man who has been tirelessly holding up the iPad, showing us the time all night. Thank Thank you.
2: Thank you again to both our debaters. A terrific debate tonight.
3: Once more. Here again, here again, here yeah. again. <laughs> Thank,
2: you. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for your
0: interest in all. Of- you know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator.